0: Hey everybody, this is Daryl Cooper, and you're listening to the Martyr Maid Podcast. You're about to hear the second episode of God's Socialist, the rise and fall of People's Temple, better known as the Jonestown Cult. If you haven't heard the first episode, I highly recommend that you start with that one and work your way through uh, chronologically. If you enjoy this series, please consider subscribing to my Substack page can be found at martyrmaid.substack.com. It's where I post supplemental writings and exclusive podcast episodes that are available only to subscribers for just $5 a month or $50 a year. To all of you who are already contributing, I very much appreciate you allowing me to do this. I hope you guys enjoy this one.
1: Here we go. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. For this small question of religion
0: As we move into this next stage Of the story There's an aspect of the Cold War um, Or of the 20th century Struggle with communism in general uh, That I want to talk about That can be very difficult to relate to In the early 21st century It's difficult for me to relate to Take yourself back to 1914 The outset of the First World War There are no communist countries anywhere on the planet. By the late 1940s, just a few decades, a blink of an eye historically, all of Russia, China, and half of Europe are communist. Communists would soon be leading the anti-imperialist revolutions getting underway in the colonized world, in Africa and Asia and other places. Communist parties were making gains and even revolutions on multiple continents in countries where merely associating with them could get you arrested and this happened in just a few decades through the efforts of what was without exception in every country where they operated just a committed minority a small group of people and despite extremely powerful propaganda, police, and even military resistance by the non-communist world this did not just happen by accident the communists on the ground from London to Hanoi were unbelievably dedicated and effective people. They were driven by a zeal that only comes from believing, really believing that they were the vanguard engaged in an historic project that was going to transform the world for the better. This is a thing that we can struggle with a bit today because we don't have a whole lot to compare it to in the contemporary world. We have individuals who are dynamic and dedicated, no doubt, organizations even that are, but nothing to compare to the worldwide communist movement in the first half of the 20th century maybe the closest thing is the global Islamist movement but but these are obviously very different uh, in, in substance and well I mean a major difference I think in how they develop is there's sort of a self-defeating mechanism built into the jihad movement whereas the communists tend to develop and nurture their recruits Islamism often uses them up and today if someone calls themselves a communist it's kind of viewed as a fashion statement or something right like, even if people hit the streets in their black masks to protest the world trade organization or go fight the fascist we sort of look at that as a lifestyle choice you know it's like being into extreme sports or something like that it's 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 a it's a it's a mask you can put on and take off back in the early to mid 20th century we heard that's not how it was. We're talking about very serious people who really believed that they were engaged in a project that was going to overturn the global order, that was going to overturn the global order and result in revolutions around the world. The only thing that eventually slowed these people down and defeated communism was the fact that its believers finally lost their faith. There's a great little book. It doesn't get read enough... Uh, anymore very rarely read but I push it on people whenever I can great little book written in the early 1960s by a former British communist named Douglas Hyde it's called Dedication and Leadership Hyde had been a mentor and leader in the British Communist Party for a couple decades until in 1948 he left the party and converted to Catholicism so a decade and a half later in the early 60s he's giving a series of talks to groups of Catholic leaders and this book was the result And in it, he tries to clear up for his Catholic audience some misconceptions, common misconceptions that they'd had about the human material that the communists were working with, as well as about the methods employed by the communists for for developing that human material, for developing recruits into dedicated, effective workers for the revolution. The very first thing he points out is that the communists understood, and not just intuitively, understood it as a matter of doctrine as a matter of policy that you tend to get what you ask for from people you know that is if you ask for a small effort you'll get a small effort but if you demand a major effort and major sacrifices very often the response you get from people is heroic this is especially true of young people who you know they haven't yet given up on idealism out of despair at ever finding a suitable outlet for it. As a party leader, Douglas Hyde had traveled around the world with, uh, you know, with the party, working with local revolutionaries. He had spent time in jail on several continents. I mean, he was in the thick of it, and he shares several anecdotes like this one to convey his point. Quote: On the other side of the world, in Kuching, Sarawak, Borneo. Recently, a security chief mentioned to me, almost with awe, the case of a young man who had gone to join the underground communist organization. He came from a well-to-do Chinese family. His father had no idea that he was in any way associated with the communists until one day he disappeared. In due course, the father learned that his son had gone to work as a rubber tapper for a few cents a day in a mixed area. That is to say, it was an area in which poor rural Chinese and Dayaks lived in close proximity to each other even though they hardly ever mixed. Above all else, Sarawak's communist organization, which is exclusively Chinese, wants to gain a following among the indigenous people. And so its leaders had called for volunteers to go and live among the Dayaks in their longhouses. The Chinese find the Dayaks food unpalatable and practically uneatable. The lack of sanitation and regard for personal hygiene appalls the Chinese. Most of the volunteers soon go down sick, but there are always others who step forward to take their place, just as this boy had done. Unquote. Now some people might hear that and say, okay, what's the big deal? You know, it's like the boy joined the Peace Corps. Except that this is a version of the Peace Corps where you would be hated by most of society and your family for joining. And if you're caught, you'll be jailed and very possibly killed in a horrible way. And this kind of dedication was not uncommon in communist movements. In fact, it was the norm. Again, keep in mind, there were no communist countries in 1914. Just a bunch of underground groups reading the same books in different languages. And by the late 1940s, a good chunk of the world was under communist control. It was mounting a serious challenge... To the American-led NATO world order. It didn't just happen. People did that. Sure, Germany put Lenin and his boys on a train and sent them to Russia, but when they got off that train, it was up to them. Can we even imagine the difficulty involved in being a Vietnamese communist opposing the French and then the Americans? Or just just think of how much easier it would have been for any of those people to just been a communist sympathizer. You know, doing enough to avoid being called a collaborator, but little enough to avoid becoming a target of the imperialists. Hyde tells another story that was told to him by a Vietnamese Catholic. He's a Catholic. This man is no friend of communists or communism. Quote, I remember some years ago talking to a man from Indochina who had fought with the communists at the great siege of Diem Bien Phu. Uh, DMB Bien Phu was the final big battle that drove the French out of Vietnam. I met him in Hong Kong. He was a Catholic from North Vietnam who had been conscripted into Ho Chi Minh's army. Our Western press had been full of the glory of the French army, which had put up such tremendous resistance at what was to prove to be its last-ditch stand against the communist-led assault. The French held on to the fortress for weeks on end, enduring all the immense suffering that a protracted siege entails. We did not, however, hear much about the men and the experiences on the other side. How about the people who were fighting against the French? Besieging a fortress is a difficult and bloody business, too. I asked my Catholic from North Vietnam, what sort of briefing did they give you before they sent you into action? The briefing they were given was this. You will almost certainly die already. To get within gun range, you have to clamber and slither over men's rotting bodies, the bodies of your own comrades. The probability is that you will die, just as they have done. If you do, you will not just be dying in the fight against French colonialism. You will not just be dying for Vietnam. You will be dying for suffering, oppressed humanity all over the world. Your death... Will help to make the world a better place. Now that was the briefing atheist leaders gave to their followers before they went into action. They were not afraid to call on them to die, and they did not hesitate to base this upon an appeal to the idealism which is deep in the heart of every man. They demonstrated, as communists have so often done, that this is a powerful thing. And their followers went into action, wave upon wave, ready to die so that others might live they were sent into battle morally prepared to fight, quote. Now, of course, in the West, communists in the West were not risking execution by death squad. I don't want to overplay that, but I, I'm not going to underplay it either. I mean, it, it took real commitment to give your life to the cause at a time when expressing support for communism had something like the social consequences of expressing support for Al-Qaeda today. That's probably understating it. If you get fired from your job for saying nice things about Al-Qaeda, you, know, you probably have a strong discrimination lawsuit with pro bono representation from the ACLU. You know, you're talking about the 1950s, the McCarthy era, in the midst of the Cold War. It was, you know, these were committed individuals. You had to be. And they became more committed the more involved they became with the communist movement. The movement gave meaning to people who very often hadn't experienced it deeply, especially communally. And it often had just spectacular results on individual personalities. People blossomed in, in, in ways they never had in their life, their, their, their capabilities. just. Hyde tells about how workers who, by any measure used by the rest of society, were mediocre people or worse. And they would come looking to join the party. Often they would be told, this this is how they would handle these kind of people. They would be told, look, the first thing you can do for the party, if you want to help, is to get better at your day job. Just focus on that for the next six months as we begin to educate you in Marxist doctrine. For now, your goal should simply be to be the best machinist at your factory, someone the other workers respect and are glad to work with. People have to know that communists are not just talkers, but that we're among the best workers, that that we're worthy of their respect. And because this potential recruit has been inspired by the environment that he sees in the party, by the ethic of sacrifice that he observes among the other members, and especially the leaders, he follows these instructions. Some don't, some drop off, but a lot of them follow those instructions. And some months later, this mediocre specimen who his whole life has been a nobody and felt like a nobody and been seen as a nobody. Some months later, this this guy has become a pillar of his community, a leader at his factory, a person to whom others are looking for guidance. You know, his family sees the change in him and he, he develops a sense of self-respect that he's lacked his whole life. Hyde gives a bunch of examples of this, including many from his own experience. In one case, a morbidly obese worker Mediocre worker with a debilitating stutter So you just have all the boxes checked there uh, Comes to him, he has a lot of energy and commitment But you know, this guy is not very promising It took time But this pitiful creature This shy, stuttering man uh, Eventually became an important leader In the, in the, in the movement, in the party he became a respected leader of his trade union, an effective speaker who could move large crowds. You know, this man who, whom Hyde said was, well, he said he was, quote, the most unpromising piece of human material that ever came my way, end quote. He had become a leader of men. When he died, this man who, who would have been lucky to have had his wife and children there listening to his eulogy by his grave, when he died, Thousands of his fellow workers and trade unionists led a procession through the streets, accompanying his body to the crematorium, and his passing received a front-page treatment in the Daily Worker newspaper. You know, I'm not saying that communism is the only thing that can have this effect on people. Of course, Christianity once had this kind of power. still might here and there, I assume. Um, Islam certainly has the power to elicit the full devotion and dedication of at least some of its believers. But mostly in the West today, um, we tend to view complete dedication to anything, no matter what it is, with suspicion. Like it's a dangerous aberration with the potential to go off the rails in unpredictable and catastrophic ways. And that's true. You know, we, We're suspicious for a reason. We've seen this movie before. And yet, nevertheless... Many of us, and maybe all of us, for moments or periods of our lives long to be shown something worth serving, something worth giving our lives to and for. And for a great many people in the first half of the 20th century, they found that in communism and in the world that it promised. And Jim Jones was one of those people. We're going to discuss the early days of Jim Jones' ministry in this episode and We're going to see a guy who is driven like a bat out of hell to accomplish his goals, I mean, with an almost inhuman energy and determination. Biographies of Jones often point to his energy and dedication in these early days as signs of the mania that was eventually going to destroy him, but these narratives don't really understand a lot about the 20th century communist movement and the effect that it very commonly had on people. We don't know exactly how Jim Jones was initiated and groomed as a communist in his early years. We have his own words and a few clues, uh, but it's it's hard to say exactly how his ideology developed early on. In the biographies, there's a lot of speculation. I, I, I I'm not going to talk much about his childhood. I, I don't put a lot of stock in the uh, kind of you know. The, there's a lot of post hoc sort of backward looking reasoning um, when you read biographies of people who ended up uh you know going going sort of off a cliff in one way or another you know you have the uh after the second world war is over somebody who knew hitler as a child said uh you know somebody tripped him on the playground one day and he got up and said one day you'll all pay for this and then i knew you know i don't i don't put a lot of stock into that kind of thinking um the permutations of of Jim Jones' ideology early on probably aren't very important anyway. We know that he grew up as an outsider and that he identified with outsiders from a very early age. We do know that. In elementary school during the Second World War, we hear stories about how when all the other boys would play at being allied soldiers chasing Japanese and Germans around, Jim would usually play as the Soviet Union, and sometimes he would play as the Nazis of the Japanese, In middle school and high school, he was supposedly fascinated by Stalin, read books about him. But by the time he was leaving high school in 1948, it's kind of hard to say where he was politically uh, or how important politics in general were to him. It was right at that time uh, that he met his future wife, Marceline. And, you know, she was from a conservative Christian family at a time when Communist and, and socialist talk was, you know, something that uh, was not looked on very kindly. And she wasn't frightened away by his ideological hangups. So uh, he, he made occasional noises in favor of socialism. But at this point, right as he's getting out of high school, it seems to be it seems to be kind of at a low ebb. So Marceline met Jim in 1948 at Reed Memorial Hospital in Richmond, Indiana, where she was trained to be a nurse and he was working as a part time orderly. Marceline was 20 and Jim was only 16 and he was still only in his junior year of high school Marceline was a conscientious and strong-willed girl who took life uh, very seriously at an early age she threw herself into whatever she took on and uh, when she was in high school for example she started a small Christian youth choir to sing for hospital patients or at old folks homes, things like that and some of the other singers remember that you know, when they would goof off, I mean, they're high school kids, at, a, at an unofficial, you know, this isn't something being run by the school. She started it herself. When they would goof off, she would scold them and lecture them about how their singing was the only music some of these people were probably going to hear. So it was important that they take their practice very seriously as a Christian duty. So this is the kind of person she was even in high school. The hospital's nurse training program was full-time. Uh, Marceline and the other girls lived in a three-story brick dormitory Two to a room, and answered to a house mother who ensured that they were, you know, adhering to academic routine and Christian morality. Uh, it was very conservative, sort of small town Eastern Indiana. They went to chapel every morning; attendance was mandatory, uh, and the trainees were expected to be back in their dorms for lights out before ten thirty. In their own little ways, you know, subdued and kind of naive ways, some of the girls would find their moments of rebellion by sneaking down to a. Midtown Hotel for an evening cocktail, but Marceline was not one of those girls. So in 1948, Marceline's nursing class is nearing graduation, and she and her roommate wanted to go somewhere far away on an adventure to help others and make their mark in the world. Both of their families lived in Richmond, where they'd been going to nursing school, and had expected the girls to transition to nursing jobs there at the hospital at Reed Memorial. But with the world kind of opening up before them They made the decision to go to Kentucky You know, it was 1948 A couple of young single Christian women Leaving the state on their own To go make their way in the world Was pretty ambitious Um, And so their plans were set And Marceline, you know She wasn't the type to change her mind once she made it But then she met Jimmy Jones And she wouldn't be the last person To change her life's plans after meeting him And so, like I said, Jim was working part-time at the hospital. He was actually hitchhiking to Richmond after his high school classes ended up in Lynn, Indiana, a small town where he lived about a half hour to the north up the Ohio line. Jim Jones seemed older than he was to most people who knew him at the time, not only because he physically matured early, but because he had a confidence and an overall seriousness, and and just the way of carrying himself made him seem older. He was tall for his age pretty well built, and he always had perfectly groomed jet black hair set over a face that betrayed a heritage foreign to the Anglo-German majority of his native Lynn. You know, in a land of blue-eyed blondes, Jim's features were almost Asiatic. He had dark almond-shaped eyes set into a high cheekbone face with a complexion that could have been Native American, maybe could have been Mediterranean, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a mystery where he got those features, to be honest. His mother and he would talk about Indian heritage, but I, I don't think anybody's ever actually been able to trace that out. When he smiled, he, uh, you look back at these old high school pictures and stuff, where when he smiles, he, he, his mouth just stretches across his face from ear to ear, this great big smile. And at the hospital, he had earned a reputation among the doctors and nurses as a hard worker, and the most, most importantly, he was loved, adored by the patients he cared for. Jeff Gwynn, in his biography of Jim Jones, writes, quote, Patients from all over the region enjoyed the best of care at Reed. Its staff was held to high standards. Reed paid well, but supervisors were sparing with praise and quick to weed out undesirables. Seventeen-year-old Jimmy was hired as a night orderly, the lowest employment rung. It was hard work, often involving disagreeable tasks ranging from cleaning up vomit to helping move the newly deceased or handling disposal of amputated limbs. Working through the night was hard enough, but for a boy trying to handle a full high school class schedule and homework, it was exceptionally onerous. Yet Jimmy thrived. He immediately demonstrated the ability to function on little sleep, or some days none at all. As soon as his final afternoon class was over, Jimmy rushed through homework and reported for duty at Reed. Once at work... He cheerfully tackled all the toughest chores that other orderlies tried to avoid. Above all, these included dealing with cantankerous patients or else seriously ill unfortunates who literally reeked of decay and despair. Jimmy Jones won them over with warm smiles, sweet-natured jokes, and always empathy. Patients of every background and their families felt that this young man understood. His memory was prodigious. Jimmy remembered every sick person's name and the names of parents and spouses and children and cousins besides. Some patients required care of especially personal nature, having diapers changed or being given sponge baths. Jimmy made these potentially embarrassing moments almost fun with his lively chatter and positive attitude. Reed management noticed, orderlies routinely received critical performance reviews. There was nothing to criticize about Jimmy Jones. End quote. Many decades later, after the death and destruction in Guyana, John Moore, a pastor who had lost two of his daughters to the mass suicide, so had no love for Jim Jones or any illusions about what he was. This is is after the catastrophe has taken place. He nevertheless said that Jones was more sensitive to the suffering of others than any man he'd ever met. That was a sentiment repeated by many people over the years, by people who followed him, those who rejected him, and those who merely came into contact with him. By all accounts, it was not an act. But if it had been, it couldn't have been more perfectly tailored to get Marceline's attention. She'd first noticed him when he was assigned the difficult task of repairing a body of a pregnant woman who had died of trichinosis for the undertaker. Jim Jones was the orderly on call, and she saw him... Visibly touched as he very gently and carefully handled the woman's body You know, although he was only an orderly He expressed concern for the woman's suffering family And even took time to go out and comfort them So after that, the two began chatting in the halls and on breaks Then sharing lunch in the cafeteria And before long, Jim had just overwhelmed Marceline She never met anyone like this It was 1948 The cold war was just getting underway and jim seemed to know about all of it he knew about the war about hitler stalin and churchill he knew their biographies he would go on and on about how socialism and and maybe even communism really weren't so bad which kind of distressed her but he he, he knew how to manage it um you know again she's the methodist daughter of a republican city councilman (laughs) so uh you can imagine her concern when she hears something like that, but then Jim would surprise her by supporting his claims with biblical passages. He'd quote Jesus about you know giving away all that one had to the poor and pointing out how the apostles were said to have pooled all their worldly possessions and given it out to each according to his need. He knew about some revolution going on in China and the efforts of an Indian saint to throw off British rule by means of nonviolent resistance. She'd never heard anything like this from someone her own age, and in Jim, it didn't come across as a, you know, just a, a recitation of facts to impress her. He was, he was really possessed and shaped by the things that he spoke about, animated by them. It didn't matter what it was, not just politics. It's just, it was his personality, and his energy and enthusiasm pulled her in. You know, Whereas Marceline had been dreaming of a bold step over state lines to pursue her nursing career, Jim's eyes were on the wider world. Things were changing, he said, and he intended to be more than just a mere spectator in the process of that change. Marceline was just swept away by all this. She started to believe that maybe he could be somebody great, and if he was a little rough around the edges, you know, those edges could be smoothed out by the careful touch of a woman maybe like her. Marceline had always had a gentle heart and, and a that Christian care for the unfortunate, but Before meeting Jim Jones, this was kind of an ethos that governed her approach to the people she met. It wasn't an ideology or a political program. You know, it had led her to become a nurse and to treat her patients with care, but Jim got her looking up from her daily work with the unfortunate to the broader reasons for their condition, as he described them. When he got wound up, he would start ranting against the shortcomings in the American capitalist system and about inequality and the failure and even the complicity of the churches on this account. More than anything else, Jim talked about racism and the mistreatment of black Americans. In the age of social media, you know, today, everyone's got an opinion on everything. But we got to remember, this is a 16, 17-year-old kid in eastern Indiana in 1948 talking like this. By the end of that year, 1948, their relationship was at a crossroads. Marceline was graduating from nursing school, and Jim, despite working nights at the hospital... Uh, Was set to graduate with honors early from Richmond High and then move on to Indiana University at Bloomington, which is about two hours away if you take the route west to Indianapolis and then south from there. Marceline wasn't insensitive to the concerns of her family about Jim's age, but he very quickly even won them over. More privately, Marceline had worries about certain aspects of Jim's personality. While he was energetic and ambitious, quality she admired in him, you know, his rocket-fueled personality could be overbearing. A kick to ride along with, but riding along was all there was room for. Most of the time, Marceline was a willing rider, but at the times when she tried to assert herself, Jim could be controlling and petulant if if he didn't get his way. Marceline excused this as a, you know, as youthful immaturity that would even out with time. Marceline, according to people who knew her at the time and for years afterwards, always looked for and hoped for the best in people, you know, excusing or overlooking their faults. And once she had decided that Jim's age was not a deal breaker, that allowed her to kind of rationalize any troubling tendencies even more easily. In any case, nobody's perfect. Certainly not anyone she was likely to find in her limited world. Jim shared her passion for helping the less fortunate and overall The good, especially the potential good in Jim, greatly outweighed the bad. And so for the first and most fateful time, Marceline would do what many, many others would do over the course of the next 30 years. Closing their eyes to alarming things about Jim Jones, instead choosing to focus on the good. She would do this herself over and over through the years and often be the deciding voice convincing other people to do the same thing. Until finally, 30 years to the month after Jim graduated from Richmond High and she made the decision to marry him, she would make her final failed stand as he ushered his followers to their deaths. Now, while Jim was away at college in Bloomington, his interest in social and racial justice led him to connect with the campus socialists. This was a period when socialists and communists were, again, very serious and disciplined people. They had to be. America during the Cold War, just before the McCarthy hysteria kicked off, was an unfriendly environment for socialists and communists, to say the least. So they had to be serious. They had to be disciplined. And it really tightened up their organizations and methods. Jim may have sought them out, um, but it's more likely that they spotted this 17-year-old kid Asking questions in class that indicated he might be open to their views. Maybe they felt him out before inviting him into their company. You know, again, it's a political environment most of us are unfamiliar with today. Jim very quickly got a lesson in how serious it was when he accepted an invitation to ride up to Chicago to see Paul Robeson speak, uh, the black actor and communist activist. The, the event was under surveillance by the federal government. And soon afterward, Jim's mother was pulled aside in front of her co-workers at her factory job and question about her son's activities. She didn't know anything, but uh, rather than intimidating Jim, the incident only began to radicalize him, push him closer to his new left-wing friends. Jim wasn't the type to back down from confrontation, ever. In the summer of 1951 as headlines were announcing the racial violence and National Guard deployment in Cicero, Illinois, that we talked about in the last episode. The young Jones couple moved to Indianapolis. Jim had begun as a business major in Bloomington with an eye toward becoming a hospital administrator, but his interest in politics and social justice led him to left-wing campus activism, and uh, eventually the hospital administrator thing kind of fell to the wayside. It had always been... the the whole idea of being a hospital administrator had, had always been a compromise between his political commitments and the need to think practically about a career but his contact with the campus socialists and developing events in the united states things like cicero brought him back to focus on economic and racial justice and so jim decided to go to law school and this meant transferring to the indiana university campus in indianapolis to get ready for it the early years of their marriage Uh, together were difficult for Marceline, and she occasionally thought about divorcing him. For all her ambition, uh, Marceline wanted a traditional family, but they were two years in, and Jim had shown zero interest in that. His interest in politics was becoming an obsession, and as he spent more time with his socialist friends and reading about events like Cicero, Marceline felt like Jim was becoming radicalized, obsessed. In Indianapolis, he began pushing right past the socialists and seeking out explicit communists. He began attending meetings and began preaching communism at home to Marceline and her nephew, who had come to stay with the couple for a while. Most alarming of all to Marceline, Jim seemed not merely to have lost his religious faith, but to have actually embraced the communists' outright hostility to Christianity. His espousal of communism at the height of the Korean War in the McCarthy era was... Worrying enough, but his newfound aggressive atheism was devastating for Marceline. He couldn't even tolerate her faith as a difference of opinion. He railed against her beliefs at home, telling her that there was no God and that the Bible was worse than a fraud. It was oppressive, racist propaganda. The churches were organs of racism and class oppression. He, He became infuriated whenever she prayed, even one time threatening to throw himself out of a window if she wouldn't stop both to put his death on her conscience and to prove to her that prayer was useless. He he could get very petulant. Marceline had only seen flashes of this side of Jim while they were dating, or else heard about it secondhand. There was a time when Don Foreman, one of Jim's childhood friends, came to work at the Richmond Hospital where Jim and Marceline had met. Um, They were very good friends, uh, by some accounts best friends from elementary school, And Jim and Don Foreman had drifted apart as they got into high school, as Don spent time on sports and, you know, backroads beer runs. And Jim Jim became kind of an increasingly isolated, eccentric bookworm. So in Richmond, at the hospital, Jim was away from everybody who knew him from Lynn, his early years, his hometown. And so he was free to reinvent himself and start over. He often made up stories, including... One that particularly impressed Marceline about how he'd been a star high school basketball player, but quit the team after the coach used a racial slur. Stories like that and his, uh, well, stories like that and his natural charm made him popular at the hospital. But now he had somebody who had known him his whole life, who reminded Jim of the early growing pains and humiliations of adolescence and whose impression of him he couldn't control. Don barely lasted a few weeks at the job. Jim made sure of that. He used the authority that he'd built up as a trusted orderly to terrorize him until he quit. One of the first times Marceline had brought Jim home for dinner to her family, uh, he revealed a a very strong self-consciousness about their class difference. Jim had grown up very poor, with a working mother and a prematurely aged father made invalid by a gas attack in World War I. Beginning in high school... Uh, Jim began taking care to groom himself very well. It was a switch he made for some reason. Um, He would spend hours polishing his shoes and pressing his clothes, making sure no hair on his head was ever out of place. It became just everybody knew that's Jim Jones. That's what he did. But he arrived for dinner that night with Marceline's family in his worst, oldest clothes, all disheveled, and was just behaving like a brute, just brutally throughout the entire meal. He assumed that they would be bourgeois snobs who were going to look down on him anyway, and so he decided to preempt them. Another time, Marceline's mother commented that she didn't think it was Christian for races to intermarry. You know, it sounds... It didn't sound as bad then as it does to us now, obviously. Uh, But Jim, he ordered Marceline to the car, stormed out of the house, shouting that neither he nor Marceline would be back. Marceline didn't see her parents for a long time after that, and even then... Uh, It was only after mother apologized and recanted. Marceline uh, was often seen crying by her sisters and friends, but she rarely complained. When she did, it was indirect, like when she warned her younger sister that when it was time for her to get married, not to marry a domineering man. But Marceline, um, you know, she soldiered on. And in in any case, the couple had other stressors. You know, I don't want to give the impression that this was their entire life. Uh, that it was just a complete mess from the first days it wasn't it was like this sometimes and uh, anyway the couple had other stressors taking up their mental space money was tight jim was working several jobs at a time and marceline worked as a school nurse in, in a in a hospital children's ward they still had marceline's 10 year old nephew to look after and juggled their schedules to make it work um and by all accounts all available accounts jim and marceline actually cared very deeply for the boy Uh, His name was Ronnie, although there are several anecdotes of Jim behaving immaturely toward the boy. Um, I think a lot of the biographies tend to blow these incidents out of proportion as foreshadowing events to come. Um, But I I think they're more easily understood as mistakes you might expect when a 19-year-old, Jim is still only 19 years old here, uh, is suddenly trying to raise a boy only nine years younger than himself. For example, Jim had a pet monkey that he would cause to chase Ronnie around the house and corner him. And the boy apparently found that quite traumatizing, um, which I can understand, but I, I have trouble seeing that as a sign of evil, unless we're willing to fix that label on most big brothers. Overall, the couple did seem to do their best. You know, They had a very tight budget and schedule, but they bought him a bike and lots of toys. They took him on outings when they could. One of those outings was to Niagara Falls, Uh, the source of another anecdote they were upriver from the falls and jim wanted ronnie to let him jim wanted ronnie to let him dip ronnie in the in the river you know kind of hold him and dip him in the river ronnie was terrified and he refused and jim got annoyed and insisted and finally he just picked the boy up and held him so his legs were in the water again not cool um but i think it gets blown out of proportion in some of the biography, it sounds to me like Jim was relating to the boy with the occasional light sadism of a big brother, which is not really surprising. You know, Jim was an only child, so he didn't grow up with younger siblings. And he was 19. And I don't think a lot of 19-year-olds would know what to do if they suddenly had to take care of a 10-year-old boy full-time. Um, anyway, it, it was on... It, there are going to be other things like this, I think, where people read back uh, and... and you know, I, I don't want to contradict necessarily authors who have put a lot of work and thought into it, but I'll offer my thoughts on some of them when I think that they're going a little too far. Anyway, um, it was on that same trip to Niagara Falls that Jim Jones was pulled onto the path that would eventually lead him to his death in the jungle. Marcelina never stopped praying, and Jim's temper tantrums just caused her to pray more ardently for his soul. In early 1952, on the trip to Niagara Falls, God had mercy and softened Jim's heart, or something like that. She had managed to prevail upon him to come with her to a Methodist church service, and at the church he saw posted a five-page document announcing the official Methodist positions and goals on a range of social issues. Among the church's priorities were supporting policies that would relieve poverty, favoring a stronger social welfare and social security system, support for collective bargaining, free speech, prison reform, the right to a job for all Americans, and most importantly, to Jim, racial equality. Very soon after that day, uh, almost immediately, to Marceline's amazement and utter delight, Jim announced that he was going to become a preacher. And so as Marceline spread the happy news and began to dream about being a preacher's wife, something that everyone who knew her at the time thought was perfect for her, Jim was considering the possibilities, beginning to plot. He would later maintain that he had remained an atheist the whole way and that he was uh, given the idea to use the church to bring people to communism. Left-wing activists were under constant active surveillance and persecution by Joe McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover at this time, but under the cover of religion, he would have powerful protection under the First Amendment communists had to use the tools at hand and to speak to people at their level. Midwestern white Christians were more likely to hear out one of their own speaking their own tongue than an atheist speaking in the indecipherable jargon of Marxist-Leninism. And didn't the Bible already provide the language to do most of his preparatory work for him? Later in Jonestown, Jim would even claim to have infiltrated the church in order to bring people to atheism. Soon after acquiring a congregation, he would begin by pointing out inconsistencies in the Bible. He pointed out how segregated the churches were, and he played up the role that they played in propping up racism, misogyny, and inequality. His attacks escalated until later, after he'd moved his congregation to California. He had them cheering as he cursed the idea of a sky god, and he stomped on the Bible and threw it across the room as his people shouted for joy. And by the time his people moved to Jonestown for their final acts, well...
1: Marxist-Leninism is a worldview embracing the realm of traditional philosophy, human history, political economy, and revolutionary change. And we must understand that in Jonestown, the importance of developing this communist philosophy. Today, the new and rising phenomena is in organizations of Marxist-Leninist. My name is John Harris, and I'm a violent revolutionary, and I kill three children. Your name? Corrine Jackson. I would kill any government official that would stand in the way of our church progress. So that there can really be a strong communist movement, as also there must be a strong socialist movement and a strong free trade union movement if fascism and genocide, the eventual nuclear war, is to at all, by any chance, be hoped to be stopped. And there's no chance, not hardly a snowball's chance in hell, particularly that nuclear war can be stopped. Stay, what, you what, what would you do for this cause? Oh, I would, I would kill, um, murder, do anything, you know. Who? Well, I can't and, and anybody else like him. All right. As developed by Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and many others, Marxist-Leninism has been a way of both understanding the world and changing it. We can say that only a Marxist-Leninist party can produce the basic principles, long-term strategy, and political program which might deserve to be called scientific theory. We, as you know, have been praised in the Soviet Union, and we're making overtures to the Soviet Union. We're meeting in the Soviet Union tonight. We have told uh, we told the Soviet Union, in fact, their wish, their slightest wish is our command. That meant any of that, whatever. If that were to mean that we were to fight, and so whatever the Soviet Union were to say tonight, I would do. If they were to give an order, that's what I'd do. I would do that. In USA particularly, the spontaneous movements of struggle among the masses as well as the practical even though limited initiatives that communist groups can undertake at this time likewise provide a school for the training and development of a communist cadre
0: but all that's still a ways off Back here in Indiana in 1952, Jim was not going to attract a congregation by ranting Marxist Leninist dialectical materialism, even if he'd intended to or had the capability, which is questionable. You know, there's no doubt that he was a socialist flirting with communism at the time. And maybe he considered himself a communist at this point. You know, who who knows? Ask a politically active 19 or 20 year old how they define their ideology, and you're likely to get a different answer every few months. But He was probably engaging in a little revisionist history years later when he claimed to already be, in 1952, a full-on communist, consciously infiltrating the church to subvert it for the revolution. More likely, his beliefs were in flux, and his motivations were mixed. Marceline was deeply unhappy at the time, and their marriage had been on the rocks, but everything changed with his decision to join the ministry, as as a Methodist, no less, the denomination in which Marceline had been raised rather than cynically hiding his atheism to hide his political activism under the cover of religion, I think it's much more likely that he simply had doubts, doubts which later solidified into rejection, Uh, but he put those doubts aside with the rationalization that what was important was the social message. In any case, Jim's doubts were a recent phenomenon, which is why his atheist turn came as such a shock to Marceline. I mentioned that Jim's father had been a First World War veteran with lungs badly scarred by a gas attack. When he returned from the war, he had trouble drawing enough breath to hold a conversation, let alone a job, and so he settled into a life of pain and resigned self-pity. He had neither the energy nor the interest to raise his only son. Jim's mother was more energetic, but all of her energy went into working to support the family, a role that she had never planned for and deeply resented. Jim was often left alone as a child, Neighbors recalled, years later, finding him as a toddler wandering the roads of their small town naked. He was as a toddler wandering around naked with dried excrement caked on his backside. As he got a little older, he started to learn how to get attention from adults other than his parents. He would tailor his performance to whatever he thought would hold the attention of his audience. At four years old, he learned that he could get laughs out of the young men at the auto shop by cursing at them. You know, they couldn't get enough of it. Little four-year-old Jimmy Jones calling him low-down, no-good goddamn sons of bitches and whatever else he could think of that he learned from his mother as she sat with him at the dinner table, chain-smoking, complaining to him about the dirty, no-good bastard she worked for down at the factory or cannery. Uh, the reaction of adults to finding him running around naked taught him another way of getting attention by transgression. A lot of stories about this survived. Um, some of them are pretty funny Like the one that had 4 or 5 year old Jimmy Walking into a church uh, In the middle of a service With no pants or underwear on Just hanging out uh, Accompanied by an entourage of dogs and cats Marching up the aisle to the preacher And presenting him with a bouquet of flowers uh, The dogs and cat Jim He collected strays and pets From a very early age you can imagine for a lonely kid um, you know, without a lot of friends, you can maybe see why that would happen. Uh, but it was a practice that he would continue um, even as an adult, not only with animals, but later when he began collecting and keeping stray people. People in Lynn recalled that after a while, he would rarely go anywhere without being surrounded by his pets. And Later, his mother remembered that she often worried that she wouldn't even be able to discipline him for fear that his animals might mount a defense. And so Jim's Childhood eccentricities were on full display in a town of maybe 900 people. It's a tiny town, so it's not as if people looked out their windows and saw some stranger boy wandering naked down the street. Everyone knew everyone else. They saw the Jones boy wandering naked down the street. You know, his mother, Lynetta, she's at work, his father, Old Jim, is down at the Veterans Hall playing cards, and for some reason, Kind of odd to most people, Lynetta had a rule that the boy wasn't supposed to be in the house alone during the day, which left him to his own devices outside pretty much all the time. It was a small town, very small town, and people knew each other's business. In the style of the time, the townspeople didn't call the authorities, but they tried to make up for the deficiencies of Jim's upbringing themselves. The housewives who saw him wandering around often took him in, fed him, cleaned him up, and... Many of them tried to see to the neglected spiritual education of the young boy. Despite being a town of only a few hundred, Lynn had no fewer than a dozen churches. And on Sundays, the economic life of the town just shut down as the men and women donned their Sunday clothes, gathered up the kids, and marched off to church. That Jim's family had no church, and apparently, as far as anybody could tell, no religion, that was very much an aberration in their town. And it was one that was noticed by everybody in the place one lady in particular took Jim in and kind of became something of a daytime surrogate mother kept him off the streets, fed him um, discoursing to him about the affairs of God and man while he ate, you know, sandwiches and it was with her that he began attending church an arrangement, you know, his mother didn't mind, figured it wouldn't hurt anything and it gave her time alone on Sundays and so that's how religion initially became a part of Jim's life and he kind of took it from there When he was a little bit older, he started going to different churches to see what they were like by himself. Sometimes he would go to multiple churches on the same Sunday and people got used to seeing, you know, young Jimmy Jones popping in and out of their services. That kind of makes him sound like a tourist, but I I don't I don't mean to give that impression because I don't think that's what was going on. I mean, this was a small, tightly knit rural town in the 30s and 40s. Its people were Anglo and German and as conventional as a postcard. Jim was an outsider, even as a child. I mean, he, felt, he felt that in his bones. He felt like an outsider. His mother, who like him, had dark hair that by much of the community was thought to speak of Indian blood, had never intended to become trapped in a small town as a hardworking wife to a prematurely aging invalid veteran. You know, she had dreams of going into business. She had four years of college. You know, she would also dreamed of becoming a writer She was interested in, you know, not so much in Christianity But in reincarnation and other spiritualist ideas you know, not, And certainly not the folk Christianity of the simple people in Lynn But the Depression changed a lot of people's plans And this is where she would ended up you know, She complained to Jim each night about his good-for-nothing father And the injustice of her lot She impressed upon him that it was his responsibility To become a great man Not just for himself, for both their sakes. She had been thwarted by circumstance, and so they'd ended up trapped in a place that they didn't really belong, among people who weren't really their people. And it would be up to Jim to make all her sacrifices worth it. And so, in many ways, Jim's early life was almost custom designed to produce a pathological narcissist. Um, That's what happened. He learned that he was absolutely special and unique and had that drummed into him every day, and yet he was unable to get any attention or love at all from the two people from whom a child, especially one so special and unique, should expect to receive it. Narcissism only superficially resembles self-love. We confuse it with with vanity. and It's not that. You scratch beneath the thin paint, and narcissism always has much more to do with self-loathing. Self-loathing and doubt is only the natural response of a child who cannot even get his parents' attention, no matter how confidently he seems to perform in his you know, wild and unending attempts to capture the attention and love of others. So Jim was an outsider deep down, in a place and a time where it was not such a common condition. You know, he was a sort of Huck Finn only with all the pathos and and emptiness implied by such a fate when you strip it from its literary context and set it loose in the real world. In the real world, the Huck Finn story does not go so well for that boy. He knew that the other kid's parents went to church. He knew the other boy's fathers took them fishing. He knew the other kids had homes that weren't dark and bare, and he knew that many other things were different about his family and that everyone else knew these things too. Well, church was his window into the world that he was excluded from, into the lives of normal people, of the in, into the life of the community. And he couldn't get enough of it, and that was why he went to as many services as he could, trying to take it all in. Eventually, he made his way to the Pentecostal church, which had been set up in town not too many years before. If Jim felt like an outsider in Lynn... So did most of the Pentecostals. The congregation was mostly made up of Southerners that had migrated up from Kentucky and Tennessee looking for work during the Depression. I don't know if you've ever been to or seen a Pentecostal service, but, I mean, these people know how to have a good time when they're in church. Uh, Instead of placidly singing out of a... You know, and I like traditional services, and and overall I tend to lean that way in general, but I I get it. Instead of placidly singing songs out of a hymn book... They sing at the top of their lungs. They're waving their arms in the air and dancing in the aisles if the spirit moved them. You know, some of them uh, they speak in tongues. I and mean, just look that up on YouTube if you don't know what it is. Uh, you know, they shouting to the preacher as, as he's as he's uh, giving his sermon. Amen and Hallelujah as he bounds across the stage, booming out the word of God. I mean, it's a it's a party. They know how to get down. You know, sometimes they stage faith healings, or members seized by the Holy Ghost would stand up and make a prophecy. You know, these rowdy Southerners. And their boisterous church were kind of viewed with varying levels of alarm and contempt by the conservative denominational Christians in Lynn. But Jim felt right at home. Now, over the years, Jim's interest in religion and ritual took sometimes odd forms. Um, In his younger years, he would have other children over to gather in the loft of the family barn. And they would listen as he would deliver lectures on religion and sometimes other subjects and he would manage this is what's remarkable a bunch of little little kids little boys and he would manage to hold their attention sometimes for hours with all these rules and he he would dress up in mock vestments and he would create strict rules and hierarchy for the gatherings and how everything had to go little boys don't like sitting around with all these he he it it became very popular sometimes he would gather roadkill or other dead animals and he would decorate shoeboxes as their coffins and he would bring them and perform elaborate funeral rituals with the participation of his audience, a little weird um, there were periods when he would be seen going around town wrapped in a white sheet interrupting passersby in Lynn and imploring them to heed the word of God and to see to the fate of their souls, You know, this is like when he's in middle school yeah, it must have been quite a sight for uh, in a small town like Lynn for a little boy that everybody knew to be accosting adults on the streets to lecture them about religion and jim's harangues were especially targeted at the card and billiards room where his father hung out it was a veteran center where where, uh, some of the old veterans would go to play cards and shoot pool Um, they didn't have alcohol in lynn it was it was a dry county people had to go across state lines to get alcohol but on a regular basis jim would march down to the hall in his makeshift robe out of a white sheet and stand at the door and wave his Bible and denounce all the men inside. And One time he barged inside and stormed up to his father and shouted that he and everybody else was going to go to hell if they stayed in that place. And again, this is about when he's in middle school or so, early high school maybe. And religion, uh, as, he, as he continued to grow up through middle school and into high school, became um, more important uh, to his life. And it became central, really, as his few elementary and middle school friends moved on from him in high school. You know, again, they got into sports and beer and girlfriends, and they couldn't really relate to Jim anymore. He became increasingly isolated. He spent his time at church and spent his off hours in the library reading. You know, when he was a teenager, uh, maybe fifteen or sixteen, he had a fight with his father and he left the house. The story is that Jim brought home a friend. The friend was black, and Jim's father didn't want the boy in the house, and so Jim announced that if that was the case, then he was not going to enter the house either and he left and he didn't see his father again for many years after that out of the house as a junior in high school Jim needed money so he took the job at the hospital in Richmond where he would meet Marceline hitchhiking the half hour there to work nights after class uh, it was there in Richmond that Jim first saw the condition of African-Americans manifested as a social issue it was something he'd read about before and. He, he would read about individual uh, instances. Of, well, Lynn didn't have enough blacks. His, his small town didn't have enough uh, blacks for him to think of it beyond the context of occasional individuals. African-Americans came through Lynn every once in a while, and you know he identified with them as fellow outsiders, especially since when they went to church, it was the Pentecostal church that, that they would go to, the only one in town that would have them. When Jim witnessed racism, it was the kind that he'd seen from his father, but Richmond had black neighborhoods. Black neighborhoods that were of a visibly lower quality than other neighborhoods. Even the nearby Italians on whom the Anglo-German Protestant core of the town also kept a wary eye. And I don't want to overstate things. We're not talking about the deep south here, but you know, it was a place and time where blacks were expected to be deferential, and the word nigger was used casually as a mere descriptive noun, so common that it... You know, it didn't even intend offense. That's just what they called people. The Protestants divided the North Side Catholics into good Italians and bad Italians, and if you were one of the good Italians, you got along just fine. There were rules and customs that we would definitely consider unacceptable and ugly today, but often the ugliness of conventions isn't laid bare until someone tries to defy them, and Richmond was a place where people mostly followed the rules. But to an outsider looking in, Someone like Jim, who didn't identify with the regime of rules and customs, but instead identified with the people excluded by that regime from respectability, he saw it all very clearly from the beginning. Almost as soon as he began making the trip to work at the hospital in Richmond, he began plying another trade on the evenings when his shift started late. From Tim Reiterman, uh, author of the book Raven, probably the best overall uh, biography of Jones, he writes, quote, "In Richmond, Jim began preaching on the streets to anyone who would pause for a while to listen. Some did, so he kept going back. He held his ministry on the north side of Richmond, down by the railroad tracks in a predominantly black residential and industrial area. His pulpit was the intersection of two streets, with a tavern located on each corner, watering spots for the workers." His raven hair combed in place and his clothes straightened, Jim cut a mature and respectable figure. Despite his smooth face and boyish features, he hardly looked like a sixteen-year-old from a farming hamlet. His manly stature made him difficult to ignore as he stopped virtually everyone who strolled or groped out of the bars. Get out of the way, many would snap, brushing past the nonstop talker. Some shoved, but he persisted. Some resented his presence, but gradually hostility turned to tolerance. Once he had drawn four or five adults with his brazen technique, Jim strode to the lamp post where he had placed a rolled-up blanket in his jacket. He unfurled the blanket on the ground before him. Inside was his Bible. Using it as a prop, he raised his voice and preached a mixture of Christianity and equality of all men under God. Jim had no reason to address racial issues when he preached in virtually all-white Lynn, but here, in a town that was one-fifth black where the blacks were confined almost exclusively to the extreme northern and southern neighborhoods, something needed to be said about race and poverty. As he stood on that street corner waving the good book, he stressed the need for brotherhood and tied the message to the written word of God. In less than an hour, he would collect a small crowd of 25 to 30 people. In his blanket were the coins he needed to keep his mission moving, end quote. This is a 16-year-old kid. (laughs) Stopping a bunch of grown men groping out of bars to preach to them and and being successful at it um, and 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 giving a message that you know wasn't particularly easy to give at a time like that and in that place you know rural rural eastern Indiana in nineteen in the nineteen forties and so this was jim's religion right up through the end of high school. And it was one way that Marceline as well as her family had been put at ease despite some of jim's eccentricities and so his move toward hostile atheism when he was in college had the feel of a kind of the kind of intellectual and ideological swing to which student students his age tend to be prone and his return to the fold when he decided to be a minister uh, was kind of interpreted by Marceline as the moderation that comes with maturity you know he'd gotten over that sort of that little stint with atheism in college and you know, she, she, she didn't question it. Now, that doesn't mean there was nothing to Jim's claim that he saw the church as a vehicle for social activism. You know, I, he was probably exaggerating later on when he's talking about how he infiltrated the church and did this from the beginning with, a, with clear eyes. Probably exaggerating, but there's definitely something to it. You know, as evidenced by his activity upon making his decision in 1952. It wasn't just a job to him. It wasn't just a... It, he very quickly joined an Indianapolis Methodist church as an unpaid student pastor and just almost immediately began wearing out his welcome. This was a small, conservative, all-white church. Virtually all churches were monoracial, uh, and it was very comfortably set in his ways. It was not looking for change. But if Jim was going to use the church as a jumping-off point for the revolution, those ways were going to have to be changed. And when given the chance to preach, Jim would Weave themes of racial and economic equality into his sermons. It was something that the congregation wasn't used to. They, they came to church on Sundays to hear about, you know, died and rose on the third day and basic gospel stuff. From his position as a mere student pastor, he was an unpaid volunteer who just came into this place, like a very young kid. He started reaching out to Catholics and Jews in Indianapolis He tried to kickstart an effort to build a community center with them. Uh, The project never got off the ground, but it gives you an idea of, you know, he was not coming in just to be, to sit in the back pew and kind of learn uh, from the deacons here. When he wasn't working one of his many jobs, he was still working several jobs um, or volunteering at the Methodist Church, he attended other churches. He kept doing that, very often in black neighborhoods, and he would take Marceline along, who had never been exposed to the energetic worship of black gospel churches. And she saw Jim let loose in a way that she'd never seen before. You know, she just, uh, he, he was singing out loud and waving his arms and dancing with everybody else like he'd been doing this his whole life, which he had. And she just was shocked by it. And when he would go to these places, Jim would try to recruit blacks away from their home churches to come join his small Methodist church. And this went over about as well as you'd imagine. His white uh, working class congregation was not looking for a large, sudden influx of new members to their little church, let alone a sudden, large influx of colored members. They may have been against racial oppression and for equal rights, at least in principle, but supporting social reform is different than wanting to be on the barricades. Jim considered this just rank hypocrisy. It just drove him crazy. It enraged him. And so he just pushed ahead trying anyway. But he ran into as much resistance from his potential black recruits as he did from uh, the people at his white church. You know, who is this? You can just imagine, you know, you have, uh, you're, a, you're an African-American at a church you've been going to your whole life. Who is this 21-year-old white student preacher attending their services and trying to peel off members to drive across town to an all-white Methodist church? Even if they were interested in trying something new, he couldn't promise that they'd be welcome. In fact, he'd have to admit that they definitely would not be welcome. And, but he tried to convince them to endure that discomfort and join him in his attempt to integrate the church. It was a larger principle at play, and he was trying to recruit people for that. Most black Pentecostalists and Baptists were no more interested in turning their Sundays into social experiments than the white Methodists were. You know, they wanted to go to church. They wanted to sing and dance and praise God with their friends and family the way they'd always done. If this young, Jim Jones' character was interested in civil rights and integration. Great. If he scheduled a meeting or a reform march, maybe they'd show up, but, you know, schedule it on Monday. Being forced to sit at separate lunch counters, that feels like oppression. But to blacks as well as whites at the time, worshipping with people who knew and understood them, that just seemed natural. And so he didn't have a lot of success. The 1950s were an interesting time. as a religiously in America. Um, it's something that, well, it was a time of religious revival. And Jim's recruiting efforts took him further afield and brought him into contact with a phenomenon that had exploded across the South and Midwest, especially in the years after the Second World War. In those years, you know, for the first time in human history, the threat of global apocalypse, immediate and unexpected, had become truly real. Communities under pressure like that uh, tend to fear witches and demons and communists lurking in the shadows. And throughout the 1950s, U.S. church membership grew at a rate that outpaced population growth. That's something that's hard to even imagine today. The enthusiasm spilled out of the mainstream denominations and overflowed the church buildings themselves into traveling tent revival meetings and and meetings in barns and revivals and warehouses and hangar bays requisitioned for the purpose. Thousands of religious entrepreneurs toured the countryside and cities holding meetings nightly for weeks at a time and then they'd move on somewhere else. Celebrity preachers like Billy Graham and Oral Roberts came out of this period, but there were countless Revivalists operating below that level Under the radar Bringing communities together for lively events That would often combine you know, Religious entertainment, healing, and prayer Uh, Local vendors often set up stalls And local and traveling musicians and performers Would join the revivalists To put on concerts and other shows The whole thing kind of took on the character Of a traveling religious carnival In rural areas And even in many cities in the 1950s It was the best show in town Many people came out of sincere belief, curiosity, or just for the show. Um, it's kind of difficult, I think, for a lot of us today to understand some of the dynamics that would have been involved in a religious event like this back then. You know, some of you will be familiar, but if you're not from this world, it can be very difficult to understand what's going on or what people get out of it. I remember when I was a teenager, I lived for a while in a tiny town up in Montana with my grandparents. And I would attend the tiny towns, tiny little Bible church with my grandparents. The whole town had maybe a few hundred people. And the preacher there at the church, uh, there are there a few, I think, actually. I can't, I can't really remember. He, he did his best, but I don't really remember anything he ever might have said. And I certainly don't remember being moved by it. But every once in a while, every few months or so, another preacher a black man named Jim Baker, Pastor Jim Baker, would come through. He didn't have his own church, but he was known by churches all over that part of the state, somehow. I don't I don't know how. Word of mouth, I guess. And at least two or three Sundays a month, he would make the drive out to some little church in the Big Sky State to preach the word. And Pastor Jim Baker could preach the freaking word. And He would get up there in his tan suit and dark red tie... Sometimes he'd open light, maybe with a joke or two. Other times he'd start slow and quiet and heavy, like thunder building on the horizon. But man, this dude had a rhythm. And before long, he's waving the Bible over his head and sweat soaking through his suit and flying off his brow as he bounds from one side of the stage to the other. And his big, giant voice is booming out about how you know, God's son had given his life for us and had been tortured and humiliated for us. And despite all our shortcomings, and even though we were all like unfaithful wives caught in the act, and, you know, despite the unsightly filth of our sins, God's love remained within reach, freely offered if only we'd repent. I mean, this guy was a high-energy, natural performer. He could get down. And so the people at this tiny little church... In Montana, they knew weeks in advance that Jim Baker was going to be coming to town. And when that Sunday came, the church was packed. I mean, people you never saw at church, people you never expect to see at church would show up. Pews were full and people were standing in the back. And so after he was done delivering his sermon, he'd lead the congregation in a few hymns. And you know, his booming voice is carrying everyone else to sing with volume and with abandon that they never displayed except when he was there. And the people would be pulled up to emotional highs and and rare feelings of connections with their faith that had been missing from their workday lives. And even afterward, they were they, they were visibly elated and emotionally spent from it. And sometimes the effect on people would last for days. People who never came to church would be moved to say how they needed to start coming again. And you know, after church, families would hold potlucks on, on these Sundays, and the people at church would split up to each other's houses to go socialize. And it was always a mark of distinction and status in this little community to be the one who would host Pastor Jim Baker there after church potluck. You know, and when he was there, he would hold court and conversation with people about the sermon or about the state of the church or the state of America or the prospect of the end times, whatever. You know, but when I think back on it now, it was just really that people just wanted to be close to him. It wasn't they wanted to talk about any of those particular things. People would huddle up to be around this guy. He really was a minor celebrity. You know, with all the social and ontological implications that that term carries. It's funny because this would have been, what, over 20 years ago. And I don't know if I've thought about it since. Even if, Even as I've been preparing this podcast, I haven't thought about it until now. But now... As I'm remembering the experience, it comes back very powerfully. Pastor Jim Baker—he was just a regular guy. He was just some dude. He had a normal job. I don't—I don't remember what it was. And he just made the rounds as a guest preacher a few Sundays a month. And the churches would give him half of whatever went the collection plate for making the drive out there, something like that. But but I want to say again with emphasis that he really was like a minor celebrity. You think about like if you know you see a celebrity walking somewhere, a movie star or. You know, uh, somebody like that, or, or if the president comes to town, you see the president. It's obviously a much larger scale, but there's that. There's this, it's like almost as if somebody has an aura about them. You you know, people around them get nervous. It has physiological effects on them, and there's higher and lower versions of that. And this, he was a minor celebrity among the people who knew him, and when he was coming to town, there was real excitement and anticipation for it. You know, this regular guy with a regular job could do things just by using his voice, just with the words he chose and the way he spoke them, that not only moved his audience, but brought a community together in a way that would not have happened otherwise. This social aspect of phenomena like this cannot be ignored in favor of a narrow focus on the credulity of the individuals being overtaken by the certainty being projected by the man, or, or his ability to just articulate doctrine or manipulate their emotions. This is a group experience. As much as an individual one. Or or else maybe you could say that the individual experience, the effects of it, were the result of participation in the group experience. That's what someone like Jim Baker was selling, to put it more crudely than I really intend. It wasn't just his sermon. The experience began before he ever arrived, and it lasted after he left. He was like an attractor who who would... Come to your town and pull everyone together And transform or transmute their energy And then release everyone back into their normal lives Slightly different than they were before If only for a while Joseph Campbell used to enjoy retelling a story Told by the old German anthropologist Leo Frobenius And so the story goes One day Frobenius was at his desk Hard at work and his little daughter A little girl was running around the office tugging at him for attention and just generally being a pain in the butt and making a ruckus. And so he looks around his desk and finds three used-up burned matchsticks and he gives them to the little girl and he tells her that this is Hansel and Gretel and the witch and why doesn't she go play with them in the other room, you know, very quietly if you please. So these were simpler times, you know, 100 years ago, Frobenius died in the 30s. So uh, that was good enough for the little girl and off she went. Sometime later, she comes running back to her father. Her eyes are full of tears and fear, so that Frobenius, was, he was worried that something had gone terribly wrong. Uh, maybe she had hurt herself or something. So she's weeping and terrified and clinging to her father, and she says, the witch, she cries, the, the the witch is in the other room, and it's after her, and she's weeping and holding on to him. And the little girl wouldn't be pacified until her father had gone into the other room himself and retrieved the evil matchstick and right in front of her broke it in half and threw it in the trash and broke the spell. Now we can hear a story like that and we say, well, you know, it's a little kid with an overactive imagination playing her silly game, right? But what I want to point out here is that the matchstick was not a witch when she received it from her father. She didn't cast it away in terror when he handed it to her. It was through the process of play, as she allowed herself to be submerged into the game, blurring the borders between imagination and reality, that suddenly, at a certain point, the matchstick became the witch. It was revealed as the witch. And again, for us, we say, well, yeah, but it wasn't a witch. It was a stick. But what's important when we're talking about witches... You know, what is important when we're talking about witches? Witches aren't real, period. You know, not not in this sense. So what are we talking about when we talk about witches? We're hearing this Frobenius story a century after the fact, third hand, but here's a little girl who is full of real terror, crying to her father for protection. Psychologically, phenomenologically, the witch was as real as anything. we can say, objectively, the witch doesn't exist, but... You know, objectivity is an—it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an abstraction of experience averaged out Stood back from and observed But moment by moment, subjectivity is all we've got And if there's a witch making you panic and cry and look for help Then that witch is real as a fact of experience Emotional experiences are engraved deeply enough into our being That reason has a full-time job keeping watch To take a more conventional religious example, the Catholic Church maintains as dogma that the consecrated bread and wine taken in communion are transfigured into the actual body and blood of Christ. And what can that even possibly mean to people like us? What could it even possibly have meant to someone like Aquinas, who died almost a thousand years ago, for that matter? Thomas Aquinas was capable of a profound understanding of Aristotle. So, a simple, logical operation... You know, this bread and wine, I know the baker and the winemaker, they live across town. My nephew plays t-ball with his son. You know, it does not equal the flesh and blood of a body crucified long ago. He was perfectly capable of that logical operation. Well, this is the point of all the stained glass and the organs and the incense and vestments. It's why the sacrament is conducted at the specific climactic moment in the service that it is. All of it designed to submerge a group of people into the spirit of the thing all the way to the point where suddenly in their subjective psychological and emotional experience the bread and wine were transfigured for them just as the matchstick was for that little girl if she can cry over that thing turning into a witch they can feel you know the profound religious emotion of the bread and wine turning into something and we'll say well i've been to church i'm even a catholic and I've certainly never heard of anything like that. But of course we haven't. You know, God is dead for almost all of us, even our most religious people. We'll go our whole lives without meeting a single person with the faith of an Aquinas, or probably even the faith of a guard. But travel back in time and tell one of these people that bread is merely bread and wine is merely wine and neither can be anything else. And they would tell you, look, yeah, I get it. Okay, I, I get what you're saying, but I was there. I held them in my mouth, as close to me as anything could be. What could you possibly have to teach me about what was real that day? I can already feel a lot of you guys pulling back on this one. So, um, well, I'm thinking of something else now. So I'll try to put it another way. Uh, But keep that story about the witch in mind, because I think if I can put this together correctly and pull it off, it'll make sense what I'm trying to do. Just bear with me for a few minutes. You know, we're going to try to find our way to how something like Jonestown happened. I, just, I don't want to just give you a recitation of the known facts. There are other podcasts and books for that. And that's going to mean maybe going down some roads that may end in cul-de-sacs, but we'll see where this one ends up. In religious participation is a black box to a lot of people, uh, modern people. It's just a mode of behavior where, um, unless you're submerged in it, all people see is the outer trappings and the whole inner life of the individuals and the groups involved is often opaque and baffling. The memory I just had about Pastor Jim Baker, that was in the 1990s, not the 1950s, when religious belief and its role in communities was much more solid. Much more real, you might say. You know, Jim Baker would drive the number of worshipers in the little chapel in Montana from its regular 30 up to maybe 50 to 100. Back during the post-war revival, we're talking about rural towns all over a county emptying out. It's hundreds, thousands of people gathered, sometimes all night long for weeks at a time. And so, yeah, anyway, um, I remember another time I was a bit younger than I was in Montana. Maybe I was 12 or 13. When I was young, I moved around a lot. I was changing schools all the time, usually a few times a year. And um, I was a kid, more or less, left to my own devices. And often, uh, by the influence of relatives, I would find my way into church youth groups, which in practice were only a marginally more wholesome environment than my public schools. But... You know, sometimes it's the margins that matter with things like this, I suppose. Kept me off the streets, and um, often there were adults or older kids who took an interest in me and provided some guidance when there might not have been anyone else around to do it at the time. And so I remember a time when I was 12 or 13, and our church group went to see the evangelist Billy Graham in Sacramento, California. Um, It was being held in the arena where the Kings play basketball, only the arena was entirely full And so there are areas set up outside with huge jumbotrons for the crowds outside. There there must have been 10,000 of us outside. So you've got a full arena, maybe 10,000 more people outside. I remember being far enough away that the nearest jumbotron wasn't very jumbo, and the giant sound system sounded far away. So you have some idea of how many people we're talking about. From so far away, the experience was kind of, it had the muted effect of, overhearing what you were assured and even kind of believe is a very profound message. But from the next room over muffled through the walls, you know, I was distracted. Most of us kids were, we were trying to be serious and solemn, but we were 12 and the screen and speakers were far away. And the message didn't seem particularly different from what we were used to hearing on a weekly basis at church. And there was a girl in the group I sort of had a crush on. And did she have a crush on me too? And you know, you remember the deal. We were 12. And so this goes on for some time. Must have been a few hours, I suppose. Um, and it was nearing the end, and they start to bring the message home, and the pace begins to slow a bit. Maybe the organ or the piano starts, you know, soft background piece, and everyone in the crowd starts to respond to that. It gets real quiet and still. And soon, as the music and the solemn tone of the preacher and that collective experience of shared attention brings the crowd into something like emotional attunement. Something starts to feel a little bit different, something in the air almost. And when the moment's right, you know, these people are professionals, they know when the moment's right, uh, they do this thing where they ask people, if you've heard this message tonight, and you've never been a Christian, but you've been moved here tonight to accept Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, please come to the front and approach the stage and pray with me. And thousands of people start emptying out of their seats and making their way up the aisles. And then they say, There are many of you out there who have been Christians, but who over the years have become distracted or discouraged by life. But no matter how long or how far we wander from God, He never abandons us. And like the loving father of the prodigal son, He waits with an open door for us to come home. How many of you will come home tonight? I ask you to come forward as well and recommit your life to Christ. And thousands more people start leaving their seats and pushing up into this giant throng near the stage. They're doing it inside, and we we have our version outside as well. Where we were, there are separate stages set up with some of the preachers, Billy Graham's uh, surrogates, I guess you'd call them, (laughs) as if the healing love of God come to earth through Christ would not suffer as it passed through the voice of Reverend Graham down through the delegated authority of his lieutenants. Anyway, uh, people in our group, in the group, that, church group that I was with, start to get up and go forward. First the adults and some of the older youth leaders, then some of the younger kids, kids my age, some of the ones I've been goofing off with for the last few hours. And I remember, I remember it well, I remember as more kids and adults started going forward i began to feel the pull as the preacher's voice picked up into a passionate prayer and more of my friends and their parents and the church youth leaders got up to join this crowd of thousands and thousands i started to feel like i was being left behind i saw kids i knew well goofballs who had ignored the entire sermon cracking jokes right up to the end get up and go Kids I knew had not been moved by the message but they were suddenly being animated by some unseen spirit blowing through the crowd. And I remember consciously deciding that I would not go. I wanted to. You won't believe me but you know, at times I, I literally almost felt as if my body was being lifted to its feet by an external force. It literally felt that way and it took active resistance on my part to keep from getting up. It felt like if I would have let my focus slip for a few seconds, I would have already been up and moving with the herd. But I planted myself on the ground and I refused to move because I couldn't locate the motivation in myself. And wherever the pull was coming from, it felt foreign and coercive. I can only understand all this as a social phenomenon, tapping into some deep instinct. If it was just for the individuals, people could have stayed in their seats and been led in silent prayer to save their souls. But there's something about the affirmative public act of getting up in front of others who know you and the pressure the growing crowds begin to put on others to do the same and and most importantly of joining all those other people in that shared state of heightened emotion. I know that a whole lot of those people were drawn up to the stage purely by social pressure. And fear of missing out on whatever might be happening up there. A fear that grew every time another one of their group got up to their feet. Sometimes, I remember especially among the younger people, whole groups would be hesitating until one of the popular and stronger personalities got up. And then it was like the rest of the group had been given permission, and they all got up and went together. Kids from rougher homes often got up for their own reasons, maybe, going forward at their own pace, without checking to see if anyone was coming along or keeping up the well integrated middle-class kids with two parents who attended church with them every week and did things like sing in the choir. They tended to move in groups, the children of church deacons and the choir leaders. You watch these little kids uh, taking their first cracks at leadership, you know, trying to manage the microcosmic social status inherited from their parents and shouldering the responsibility of being the first one to, get up, you know, to get up first in a way that brought the others along. Each individual was thinking about, you know, his or her own life and the state of their souls maybe, but, you know, sure, but they were also navigating and reinforcing all these embedded social hierarchies, affirming the structure of their groups, their their little miniature societies by their participation and silently negotiating their closeness and commitment to one another. I was with a group with one of the church leader's kids. A boy maybe a year or two older than me, whose family had been active in the church, in that church, for 20 years before he'd ever been born. And he did his duty and he got up to lead our group to the front where, you know, we were to receive our salvation. I knew that in refusing to go up, I wasn't only in dialogue with Reverend Graham and the good Lord, but that I was refusing to go up with the boy leading our group, refusing his leadership and by implication casting some measure of judgment upon my peers who were submitting to it. None of this was articulated or thought out. It was negotiated by exchanged looks and body language and vague emotions. I was putting distance between myself and the rest of them, even though it was the last thing I wanted to do at the time. The girl that I'd been crushing on, whose friends had for the last few hours been in Negotiation with my friends to arrange the next stage of our awkward adolescent courtship she got up to go with the rest and when they'd gone about 10 feet she glanced back at me and one of her friends turned to wave me on but I stayed put and I knew I knew immediately intuitively on some level that that was over now too and then the strangest thing after the prayer after maybe 20 minutes or so when the crowds were shuffling back to their seats something had clearly changed many of the adults and children were transfigured their faces were glowing many of them had tears running down their cheeks and others were full-out weeping instead of anxiously eyeing one another as they negotiated their pubescent status hierarchy my friends were walking back calm docile smiling at each other or else wearing masks of introspection or deep emotion as the smiling ones walked beside them with words of comfort and encouragement. Most of them had gone up there for reasons profane and personal. I I know it for a fact, but once they were up there, the personal faded into the background as they surrendered to this social ritual. And they came back bonded. They were the ones who had gone forward together and who had stood together in a state of emotion profoundly heightened by the orchestrators of the experience and made a public commitment to themselves and to each other and to God. And they returned to their seats, bound to one another in a way that they had not been just a few minutes before. And it was very real, both for them from the inside and for me from the outside. Now, you know, again, I don't want to overplay it. The effect doesn't last forever. At a youth group meeting the following Wednesday, the Billy Graham event had been on a Sunday night. On Wednesday, the kids were still nicer to each other than usual. Um, I guess you could say the the adolescent status hierarchy operated with more benevolence. Maybe put it in a Jordan Peterson way of putting it. Um, But then the next week, things had more or less reverted back to normal. You know, life intrudes and habit reasserts itself. And so these binding rituals have to be repeated regularly for reinforcement, which is why religious calendars are cyclical. A main purpose of religious gathering is to be found in this binding. And the purpose of ritual and religious performance is to bring people to a state where they might be available to experiences they, they wouldn't normally be in a normal mode of consciousness, the mode of You know, running errands and doing your taxes. The goal is to bring people from the place where matchsticks are just matchsticks to the place where one of them might become a witch. And to do it together. It entails a lowering of barriers and inhibitions, unnatural to our daily lives of money-getting and status-seeking. And people are very hyper-social animals. And, And a sense of union with one's community is sacred, if anything is. Individuals are bound together into communities through the sharing and reliving of heightened experiences Transcendence, victory through common struggle Commemorated through joyful celebration one hopes But people can also be bound together just as tightly by trauma By common hatreds and paranoia At least for a while And People who can become expert at pulling others up to the heightened state where these experiences are possible Tend to become revered figures Traditional religions use things like sacred architecture and art, music and incense and narrative to aid the process, aids which involve and often overwhelm all the senses, but with which the audience is familiar, usually all the way from childhood, and which contain built-in triggers designed to allow them to relax and open up. It's doubtful that Jim Jones could have had the same effect on people and done what he did as a secular motivational speaker. But the man was an absolute virtuoso up on that stage. I mean, he knew his audience, he identified with them, he knew what they needed and and what they needed to hear. He was never going to last as a student pastor at the little Indianapolis Methodist Church. Within a year, he was gone, scouting locations in India to start an interracial church of his own. Starting his own church was going to take money, and money was something that he and Marceline never had much of. They were both already working multiple jobs, but now Jim got even more creative. You know, he found a way to import monkeys from South America and little monkeys and attached a cage to the back of his bicycle, and he rode around Indianapolis selling them as pets door-to-door. I don't even know how that <laughs> remotely where you would probably have a SWAT team gun you down for that today for health code violations. You know, he spent his evenings on the road hitting the revival circuit. Uh, going to these tent revivals uh, that I I was talking about, earning extra money and refining his craft. Jim seemed to be able to operate on almost no sleep, uh, even from high school, and that was a trait that would carry him through almost to the end of his life. But while they were earning enough to pay their bills, barely, Jim and Marceline weren't on their way to being able to fund the establishment of a new church, so Jim increased his pace even more, traveling far and wide to preach, and often leaving Marceline at home for extended periods when she wasn't working maybe to give marceline some company but also to you know allow her to work more hours they brought in a pious middle-aged woman um that they knew from the church brought her into their home as a live-in housekeeper and cook their household grew again when they added an 18 year old woman named goldie who needed help and jim and marceline helped guide her to a career in nursing and then they added another person a woman named esther a lonely church-going woman middle-aged white lady who remained loyal to the family until she died with them in Jonestown. And from this point on, the Jones house would always be full sometime in 1954. After Marceline's nephew had left to go back to his mother, Jim and Marceline acquired another foundling named Agnes. Um, again, I don't like to make too much of childhood and early life anecdotes as being premonitions of the stuff we're interested in later, but sometimes the patterns are a little too obvious to write off and they at least deserve mention. Um, Uh, You know, as a child, Jim was collecting his menagerie of pets. And here at just 22 years old in 1954, he is bringing all these other people into his household already, you know, three adults and two kids that he's brought in. Although Marceline's nephew, Ronnie, had gone back to his mother. You know, as as a kid, people remembered how Jim would never go anywhere without his pets following. I I mentioned that in in one of his Stranger episodes around middle school. Neighbors would remember seeing him walking along the two-lane highway on his way to church, dressed in that white sheet of his and surrounded by his dogs and cats, which would wait for him outside the chapel until the service was over and he would go off to another church. And later on, uh, when he would built up his church, he would never go anywhere without being surrounded by bodyguards and his admirers. And So about Agnes, uh, one Sunday after Jim had preached a sermon, a girl of about nine in raggedy clothes with unkempt hair and dirty face, approached Jim with a bunch of flowers that she'd picked from the bushes. She hands them to him, and she looks up at him and says, I love you, with a really bad stutter. Um, Jim and Marceline immediately fell in love with the girl, understandably, uh, and before long, they convinced her neglectful mother to let them adopt her. Agnes had been very poorly looked after, but under the care of Jim and Marceline, her behavior started to improve, and with therapy, she even overcame her stutter. Well, Jim finally had a breakthrough in 1954 when a member of the Methodist church who was sympathetic to his politics introduced him to Ron Haldeman, a Quaker and open socialist who, after hearing Jim's pitch, agreed to let him share his office space and secretary and to do what he could to help him get a church started. Now, Haldeman, for his part, he had his doubts about what Jim was going to be able to accomplish in Indianapolis. The state of Indiana had been a hotbed of the KKK during the organization's reappearance during the First World War generation before. Even though the second iteration of the KKK had begun in Atlanta in 1915, within a few years it had spread and found its home mostly in the cities of the Midwest and the West. Detroit at one time had over 40,000 members, and Chicago, Cleveland, Cities as far as Portland had very strong presidencies. There were very few blacks in any of these cities at the time, and the group focused its hostility and activism mostly on Jews and Catholics, that is, Southern and Eastern Europeans, as well as the Irish. At its peak in the 1920s, it was said that one in five eligible men in the state of Indiana was a member of the KKK, and the group was a political kingmaker in the state. The organization declined rapidly after the mid-1920s, but many of the 50- to 70-year-olds in Indianapolis, so the kind of people who would be run in the city, when Jim Jones began his church would have been members in their younger days. Unlike many other northern cities, Indy already had a significant black population going back to before the Great Migration. It had been a stop on the Underground Railroad, and many escaped slaves just stopped there for good. By the early 1950s, there were an estimated 40 to 50,000 African Americans living within Indianapolis city limits. In Indy, the means of keeping blacks in their places was typically less overt than the hostility found in either the Deep South or the more violent northern cities like Chicago or Detroit. For example, trade unions, which controlled hiring at many factories and other jobs, usually voted to exclude black workers from membership. A city ordinance had made it so that houses could not be sold unless a majority of the neighborhood's current residents voted to approve the sale. As a result, although not officially excluded by law, black residents were confined to a few slum neighborhoods. Their children restricted to underfunded schools, which, although not officially segregated, were nevertheless pretty much all black. The largest black high school in the city was prohibited from competing in sports against white city schools until the 1950s when a federal law required a change. The school then immediately won back-to-back state basketball championships, but rather than getting a parade through downtown, as white schools did after winning state, city officials organized a small affair on the roads surrounding their school. Like many northern cities, and unlike the south, Indy had a low-key way of not addressing the concerns of its black residents. They didn't use fire hoses and German shepherds, and so they avoided the bad national press that would soon descend on the South. Instead, they co-opted black community leaders, many of them ministers, into participating in discussions that just never seemed to go anywhere. I got a passage here from Jones biographer Jeff Gwynn. African-American ministers called the offices of the mayor, senior city staff, school board members, and other influential white leaders, requesting meetings to discuss their grievances. They were gratified at the quick, positive response. Dozens of meetings were held. The white leaders listened intently and promised serious consideration of all they'd heard. Afterward, letters were exchanged. Sometimes committees were formed. Every time the black ministers wanted additional meetings, they were promptly scheduled. If the African American leaders were frustrated by lack of immediate action, they never demanded more than their white counterparts. Confrontation was simply not the Indiana way. Black residents were pleased when their spokesman reported that there had been another meeting and things looked promising. They mistook access for influence. Nothing changed in Indianapolis. End quote. But Jim Jones was not looking for access, he was looking for action. He started his little storefront church with just a few defectors from the Methodist church he left and a few neighborhood blacks that he would managed to pull in. But within just a few weeks, he announced to his office mate, Ron Haldeman, that his congregation had already grown to a few dozen, with new faces arriving every Sunday. Now, Haldeman couldn't believe it. He didn't know what was going on. He couldn't believe it. So he had to see it for himself. And he went down the next weekend and took a folding chair uh, set up in community unity. That's what Jim called his, his church. Uh, among about 25 to 30 other people, mostly elderly black women. And Jeff Gwynn describes this. Haldeman was prepared for a typical hymn, sermon, collection plate service. Marceline Jones wrote the titles of several hymns on a chalkboard. As she seemed about to lead the small congregation in song, Jim Jones barreled into the room and, instead of signaling for the singing to commence, asked a general question of all present. What's bothering you? A hand toward the back went up. An old black woman stood and complained about the electrical company. There was some problem with her service, and even though she constantly complained, nothing was done to fix it. But the company still sent monthly bills. When she demanded maintenance before she paid, the white people she dealt with threatened to cut off her power. There was murmurs of assent. Almost everyone present, certainly all the blacks, had endured something similar, the woman told Jones she felt she had no choice other than to pay without getting the requested repairs. Her family, which included grandchildren, couldn't live in the dark. She was ready to give up and didn't know what else to do. Jones did. He ordered Marceline to fetch a pen and paper. Let's write a letter, he told the old woman. Then, with Marceline serving as secretary, Jones dictated a message to the electric company, citing the lady's constant attempts to get her problems resolved and explaining that all she wanted was the service she paid for. He asked the rest of the congregation for suggestions. What else should be in the letter? They recommended some embellishments, and these were added. Then, Jones had the letter passed around, and everyone signed it. Jones said that this show of unity proved that they were a real family in this church. They worked together to help each other. The next day, Jones promised he would personally deliver the letter to the electric company's main office. While he was there... He would find out who was the right person to discuss the matter with face-to-face, and he'd sit down with him or her and explain how a wonderful lady was being treated unfairly. Things had to be, would be, made right. Only after making that vow did Jones allow Marceline to lead the singing of a hymn. Then Jones preached a lengthy sermon, heavy on the scripture and emphasizing tolerance and love. At the next Sunday service, Jones asked the old woman to stand up and tell everyone what had happened. She joyfully reported that her problem with the electric company was finally resolved. Somebody had come out and things were repaired. She thanked everybody for their help, Pastor Jones most of all. Jones crowed, Together we stood up to the white people and won. When you come to this church, you get something now. Quote. Well it's not hard to imagine why a church like that would appeal to Jim's target audience. Often, despite having a sermon prepared for the week, Jim would see some story of injustice in the local or national news, and instead he would just read the story to the people and involve them in a a discussion about politics or race relations as he weaved in biblical references as they went along. The word spread quickly, and very quickly. Pretty soon Jim Jones' congregation was outgrowing the little storefront church. Ron Haldeman returned, to see how things were going about two months in, and he couldn't believe his eyes when he saw over a hundred people packed into the tiny space. Jim wanted to buy his own church building, but the small offerings from his mostly poor congregation weren't even enough to cover the church's expenses. He was still subsidizing the church with his outside jobs. Raising money from the community was out of the question, because there was very little money in the community, and Jim refused to bring in any outsiders who might have challenged his control or the direction of the church. There was one avenue open to him. The Revival Circuit was hitting its peak in the mid-1950s, and so Jim hit the road harder than ever. Whereas before he had hit the Revival Circuit for small change and anonymous practice, now he kind of knew the tricks of the trade and he had the confidence to use them. Like any religious movement that breaks through the levies of mainstream doctrines, the Pentecostal revivalists were experimental, and Jim witnessed religious innovations by the mid-1950s that were unfamiliar to him from his days at the Pentecostal church in Lynn. Using intuition and a quick eye and The ability to work a crowd, sometimes spies and plants in the audience, the preachers would amaze their audiences by calling out people and telling their phone numbers or social security numbers. Uh, They would describe their chronic pains and illnesses, calling out items in their pockets or purses, um, somehow knowing about personal or financial problems or recently deceased loved ones who, of course, they were assured were smiling down from heaven. Now Jim was a skeptic, to say the least. And he saw through the trickery right away, but he was amazed at the effect on the crowds. Many of the preachers who got away with this were rank amateurs in Jim's estimation, and he was convinced he could put on a much better show and pull in the money that he needed for his new church. The revivalists were drawing huge, enthusiastic crowds in the mid-1950s, making big money. Uh, The man who was considered the godfather of the post-war revival movement, William Branham, He regularly drew tens of thousands of people to his offense, the largest religious crowds ever in many of the cities he visited. Jim had been hitting the back roads circuit for over a year, spending countless hours at healing services, watching, you know, watching with a student's attention, studying tone and body language, experimenting to see what worked and what didn't in venues where he was unlikely to be recognized until one day he told Marceline that he was scheduled to deliver a sermon at a religious convention in Columbus, Indiana, and he wanted her to come along. She had seen him clapping and dancing at the Pentecostal services, but she was still a conservative Methodist at heart, and she wasn't read into his experiments at healing and clairvoyance yet. Tim Reiterman describes what happens in his book *Raven*. quote. That night, a fellow minister... A little old white-haired lady in a print dress and white socks introduced Reverend Jones to the congregation with this prophecy. I perceive that you are a prophet that shall go around the world, and tonight you will begin your ministry. Marceline, the skeptical nurse and a Methodist, became uncomfortable, thinking that Jim would surely fall flat on his face. Jones did not know what to do. Fitful and about to break out in hives, he mounted the pulpit. When he went to address the group, his mouth would not open. He closed his eyes, probably wishing he could drop dead. Then it began. All manner of thoughts flew through his mind. He called out people as fast as his tongue would allow. Soon the people streamed toward him to be touched in the name of the Lord. To Marceline's utter amazement, her husband's touch made these people fall down, praising Jesus. The gathering broke out in screaming and hollering. The noise, the energy of the crowd seemed to shake the building. Marceline stood there in awe, proud that the man she loved had been blessed with such a gift. Word traveled fast among the faithful. So many people arrived for the second night's meeting in Columbus that the audience overflowed. Jim called out names and clamped his eyelids shut, belting out words, laying his hands on heads and bodies. The emotional level rose to a near frenzy as Jim poured out his seemingly endless incantation. Later, he would confess to mixed emotions during the sessions. He was happy that the juices had finally flowed, but the intensity of healing drained him. He thought that he could not stand to do it again, yet he could not stop. The feeling of power and control, the adulation, must have overwhelmed him, regardless of whether he actually believed that the Holy Spirit was working through him. End quote. So word did travel fast among the faithful, and Jim was soon a popular draw in his own right, often preaching in front of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. His own people were proud, you know, that their pastor was becoming a minor celebrity, and they were grateful that throughout all of it, he never diverted his attention away from them as his first concern. They worried that he was going to run himself into the ground, but his energy seemed bottomless. Jim's goals at Community Unity were to provide an example of an integrated church, to serve his poor and black parishioners, and to bring his congregation around eventually to socialism. But his growing profile on the healing circuit... The revival circuit was starting to complicate things. Many people who saw him perform miracles at revival meetings sought out the church of the great healer to attend themselves. These new arrivals, most of them white, had very little interest in his social or political goals. They were there for the magic. He felt he had to mix healing and other miracles into services at community unity now to keep them around, but he was ambivalent about the whole thing and he usually tried to downplay their importance at his own church. He would sometimes chastise his people for coming to church only to see a show of miracles or selfishly to be healed when what he wanted, what God and the world needed, were people who were willing to sacrifice and serve others. Reflecting later, he often expressed puzzlement and skepticism about the whole thing, about his healing, wondering if the people who claimed to have been healed by him had really been sick or if the effects were psychosomatic and wore off sometime later. Like other healers, he had his bag of tricks, but he marveled at how his fakery sometimes seemed to stimulate genuine healings in people who he didn't know, who weren't in on the gag. The new people who were brought in from the healing circuit stretched Community Unity's little storefront to the limit. By 1956, they had to upgrade, and Jim found a perfect opportunity. As neighborhoods and cities across the country were integrating after the war, the white populations were fleeing to the suburbs, and that was happening in Indianapolis as well. Jim found a synagogue abandoned in a neighborhood like that because there were no longer enough Jews in the area to support it. The building held over 700 people, which was far more than Jim had at the time, but he was ambitious. At first, he called it Wings of Deliverance, but since the word temple was carved in stone on the outside, he soon gave it the name that his movement would keep to the very end, People's Temple. He was able to cut a deal with the present owners so that the purchase was interest-free if he paid it off within a year. To make that happen, to help fill the seats of his enlarged church, Jim needed to do something big. And so in the summer of 1956, he organizes a massive religious convention in Indianapolis, bringing in the revered William Branham, the founder of the movement himself, to headline the event. Now Branham is kind of a forgotten figure now, but he's, he's an interesting figure in American religious history. In, t- in his time, he was as revered in a good part of the country as superstars like Billy Graham and Oral Roberts. Out of nowhere, this guy appears in 1946, claiming to have had an angelic vision. He begins a campaign, traveling to country churches and small venues, claiming divine communication and performing miracles. And in almost no time at all, uh, he's attracting massive crowds. People came away with stories of healing and even a resurrection and word spread so far, so fast, that within two months of his start, he holds a meeting in Jonesboro, Arkansas, that attracts 25,000 people from 28 states. Within two months of his, of his announcement of his first vision. While well, many of the preachers that sprang out of this time were flamboyant, they dressed flamboyantly, they were very energetic on stage, Brandon was quiet, calm. Now, his preaching was described by someone as halting and simple. He just told stories of angelic visitations and receiving messages from God, but he refused to discuss doctrinal issues. Said his mission was only to bring unity to the churches. Although Branham's following was mostly white, his movement was interracial from the beginning, including the preachers. When he was touring Southern states to satisfy local laws requiring segregation at public events, a long rope was meandered through the integrated crowd so as to technically separate white from black in accordance with the law, even though they were standing right next to each other. And Branham himself, from everything I've been able to find and read, seems to have been a true believer, or at the very least, not in it for the money. He wore cheap suits, he had an old car, um, not many possessions, he refused to take a large salary, took about 7000 per year at the height of his popularity, while the people who gathered around him were skimming huge sums for themselves. Uh, his manager alone was taking 80000 a year. And Branham had no interest in the business side, and so he just went place to place preaching and healing. What people were doing around him, he, he didn't pay a lot of attention to. By 1953, his movement was becoming so popular among Pentecostals that he was drawing people and money away from the established churches, and the big Pentecostal denominations officially denounced him and his message. But being denounced by mainstream authorities only raised his status in the eyes of people like Jim Jones... Friend and admirer of outcasts everywhere, and so in 1956, at the time of Jim's Indiana event, Branham's popularity is still really, really great. And overall, you could say 1956 is probably the peak year of the revival, uh, the post, the post-war revival. Even though Jim would be playing second fiddle to Branham, he would be doing it at his own event, in front of 11,000 people. Just not bad for a 24-year-old self-made preacher who had only started his church in a storefront with metal folding chairs less than two years ago. Before the event, a Christian newsletter uh, out of Chicago gave Jim some space to promote the event. Tim Reiterman, writer of Raven, pointed out that even here in 1956, while promoting his Christian event, Jim Jones' veiled agnosticism is evident. He wrote, quote, Christianity, like a watch, needs to be wound if it is to start running. The Word states that he that hungereth and thirsteth after righteousness shall be filled. We cannot progress with God until we see if there is something to answer our quest for truth. Is there any divine response to man's yearning for a transformed life? Is progress merely a lifting of one's self by one's own bootstraps? Is what we hear from heaven but the echo of our own pleading cry? write And Reitman describes the event. Quote, Though Branham was known from Chicago to the Carolinas, his ministry was not particularly strong among blacks, but Jones was becoming so, and blacks constituted about one-fifth of the congregation at the event. Many came to see Jim Jones in the afternoon preliminary service, then stayed around for the climactic nighttime session with the great William Branham. Though Jones was much more boisterous in his delivery and prayers than Bran- Branham, both preachers followed much the same Pentecostal procedure, relying heavily on numbers Addresses, social security, telephone, and insurance policy numbers. All facts any good private detective could dig up. Like fortune tellers, they told people about their past and future lives. Branham even told people what their doctor had said on the last visit. All this discernment was meant to build faith to that point when healing was possible. The prayer line stretched from the rear of the auditorium to the stage and across it. Individuals came forward in turn for a private consultation with Jones or Branham. As the preacher laid hands on the person and prayed aloud, the energy climbed. In the pews, the faithful lifted their hearts and minds in prayer. Feverish, some uttered cries of ecstasy or pleaded to Jesus for a miracle. Some fell out before the preacher could even touch them. But usually the preacher appeared to give them a good shove on the forehead at the conclusion of the prayer, and that their own inclination and whatever power came from the Holy Spirit sent them toppling backward, their hands up in surrender to the heavens some crumpled softly to the floor but many keeled over stiff as boards it was fortunate that sturdy young men stood by to catch them and lay them down gently hallelujah praise the lord the people cried as their brethren experienced the holy spirit all around the auditorium people raised their voices in thanks if all went well bodies spilled down the aisles like an upset pile of cordwood. some people touched by the holy spirit were supine twitching Eyelids aflutter, their mouths spasmodically opening and closing like fishes on land. Some popped to their feet almost immediately, smiling, dishevelled, but refreshed. Their neighbors hugged them as they returned to their seats. Others stayed entranced on the floor, seemingly forgotten by everyone, for minutes and sometimes hours. By evangelical standards, the more people who fell out, the better. Branham not only enjoyed one of the best averages around, but he could also get people to fall out of their seats when he was on stage. He could reach them without touching them, and sometimes virtually everyone on whom he placed his hands dropped over, end quote. The convention was a huge success. Backed by his growing congregation and feeling the wind at his back, Jim Jones was ready to involve himself in the changes that had been shifting the tectonic plates of American society in the mid-1950s. In 1954, two years before the convention, the Supreme Court had ruled on Brown versus the Board of Education against segregation in schools. That was the beginning. It was clear that the ruling was the beginning of the end for the whole Jim Crow system, and the Old South prepared to make its final stand. Now Jim, who's still only 26 years old in 1957, was coming into his own just as this battle was getting underway, and he wanted to open a front in Indianapolis. Because of his increased profile, his church was growing, but it was also changing. Whereas his little community unity storefront was majority black, his expanding people's temple was now majority white and represented a diverse range of uh, ideology and ideological and religious commitment. You know, some had come over from a crosstown Pentecostal church to which Jim had occasionally been invited as a guest preacher. When he came, his small, mostly black congregation, this was still in the community unity days, would come with him to that church. Their presence was welcomed by some at the church, tolerated by others, and uh, Jim's sermons were always popular, so popular that when the church's aging pastor announced his retirement, Jim was a leading candidate to replace him. This was during the time when Jim was looking for a larger building of his own, but inheriting an existing church with about a thousand members already might have been an even better path if he could pull it off. In the event, though, the church's board decided against Jim because while they could tolerate occasional visits by Community Unity's black church ladies, they weren't looking to become an integrated church permanently. After that, Jim refused to even visit as a guest preacher. He stormed out of the meeting and told the church leaders that he would never preach to any audience that didn't welcome all races. And several of the church's white members left with him to People's Temple. Many of his white congregants, though, they were there from the revival circuit, as I mentioned before, and they were uninterested at best in his social message. Some were only vaguely Christian. He picked up a batch of Edgar Cayce followers after he performed a show of clairvoyance at a spiritualist conference, for example. Edgar Cayce was a sort of Nostradamus-style psychic from the early 20th century. But Jim had no intention of People's Temple becoming a white church that happened to have a few black members. In fact, while he preached equality, he let his people know that equality was not a passive attribute, but something to be brought about by effort and sacrifice. In various ways, he let the white members know that they were there to serve the blacks. He let those who were more well-off financially know that more would be expected from them than those who were less well-off. He pushed his people. And this drove some people away, but those who stayed were more committed. And it was always Jim Jones himself who set the example. From Jeff Gwynn, quote, Outside of church, Jones organized activities for everyone. Picnics and talent shows and outings to zoos all over the region and carpooling without regard to race. Everyone in the congregation was welcome in his home. The Joneses lived unpretentiously. Their furniture was a hodgepodge of hand-me-downs from Marceline's family and acquisitions from rummage sales. The only item of note was a gargantuan dining room table. There had to be room for at least a dozen people to eat at a time because Jones invited virtually everyone he encountered home for meals, end quote. And Tim Reiterman continues with the theme, quote, The home life and church life of the Joneses merged beyond separation. When they found one of the temple members unhappy and covered with bed sores in a nursing home, they brought the woman to their large white duplex on North College near 24th Street. Marceline converted her own house into a nursing home and, with help from Jim and, while working an outside job, brought the home up to state standards. Though capacity was 24 patients, the integrated nursing home sometimes exceeded that number because it was clean and inexpensive. When the nursing inspector came, extra patients were secreted next door in a church member's house. The first home belonged to the Joneses, but a second opened as a church enterprise. Both were profitable and required full-time management, so when Marceline's father took early retirement at 55, he and his wife moved to Indianapolis to help out. They wound up running the homes and living with Jim and Marceline. Although Marceline was happy with the nursing homes, she seemed depressed at times. She confided some of her misgivings to her parents. Jim thrived on all the attention he received from his congregation, so much so that he had transformed their house into a quasi-commune. Though Marceline craved privacy, Jim had brought about a dozen people into their home. They were temple members, foundlings, and friends, and by their cohabitation they formalized the commingling of their religious and personal lives. With Jim playing pastor, confessor, and counselor, the house was turned over to church-related matters, personal problem-solving, and sometimes to chaos. People came and went, making demands 24 hours a day, but young Reverend Jones was enamored of his enlarged family. Jones wanted the church to exemplify egalitarianism, to shelter the needy, to provide a family for the lonely. Stray animals and people were taken in. He ordered everyone to wear casual clothes to church one Easter Sunday so no one would feel out of place or inferior. The church opened up a soup kitchen for the poor and Skid Row characters and soon expanded its social services with missionary ardor. People's Temple gave away canned goods or paid the rent for some indigent, provided free clothing at a job placement center, and delivered coal to poor people who otherwise could not heat their homes." Quote. That soup kitchen that he just mentioned in particular... Uh, really, it was more of a free cafeteria. They serve meals, not just soup. Um, it was an important and impressive achievement. You know, Jim tapped one of his most enthusiastic black congregants to head up the project. And the man, uh, Archie Imes, he quit all other work to dedicate himself to it. He and his wife worked together to stretch a small weekly food budget by any means available to him. They are very resourceful. Reiterman continues, quote, They bought overripe produce dirt cheap or found free edible food at railroad freight yards and unloading areas. They convinced butchers to discount their prices for a small payoff and to give them Saturday's meat that would spoil over the weekend. The response was overwhelming. The temple served 18 meals on the first day, 100 on the second. Thanks to such enterprising efforts, they were soon dishing up an average of 2,800 meals a month. Transients lined up outside the church basement, sometimes at 7.30 a.m., anxious for a hot meal served by temple volunteers. They came for the food, not the proselytizing. Along with working-class degenerates, now and then a former professional on the skids would pass through the food lines. Once, a former doctor from Colorado interrupted his free meal to put a splint on a bum's broken leg. End quote. 2,800 meals a month. You know, in, in addition to all the other services they're providing... I'll keep pointing out that it was Jones, Jim Jones, his will and his energy that made all this happen. He didn't take over an established church or organization with a food and services program that he expanded and improved. He built this from scratch. He rented a spot, went door to door inviting people to come to his first little church. A few people showed up, a few elderly black church ladies, and he went to work trying to solve their problems. And more people began showing up to see this young white preacher who helped grandma get her power turned back on. The food program was not something they did once a week after church, with a few people sticking around after the service to dish out soup for a few hours. It was seven days a week. Finding the food, cooking, serving, cleaning. He had his people coming in at 4 a.m. on their Tuesday mornings to set up breakfast before they headed to work. Reiterman continues, Jim Jones inspired it all. Often, he reached into his own pocket to help the needy. Human services aside, Jim Jones was not fashioning an ordinary church. Step by step, he demanded more of his people than most Christian churches. As part of a systematic binding process, he attempted to keep his members within the temple family on Christmas and Thanksgiving, rather than with blood relatives. He wanted his congregation to look upon the temple as the most important part of their lives. Indeed, he hoped that they would dedicate their lives to the temple and its goals, as he had. Consequently, as he issued his call to humanitarianism, he offered a deal. If you donate your material possessions and dedicate yourself to the work of people's temple, I will meet all your needs. Summoning up passages from the Bible, he urged his people toward a form of socialism he called religious communalism, end quote. Now this is the part the point in the story that most chroniclers of People's Temple look to as the beginning of a transition to something like a cult. Reiterman claims outright that, without evidence as far as I can tell, that Jim's call for people to sign over their property to the church and work for the movement full-time was an attempt to satisfy a psychological need he had to dominate and control them. The same cultish cultist psychopathologies that would eventually lead him and them to their doom... I don't think that's the best way to understand what's happening. Jim Jones was a communist, and he saw his movement, certainly by the late 1950s, first and foremost as part of the world communist movement. Any conflicts he may have had about whether he was merely a socialist, supporting reform, or a doctrinaire communist seem to have been resolved at least by 1959, when a series of events beginning with the Cuban Revolution solidified his ideology. In the mid-1950s in Indiana, he's still measuring his rhetoric according to what he thinks his audience can handle, but by the late 1950s, he's actually starting to string them along and and, and get a little more direct. And with a few years, he'll have shed any pretense at all. And Reiterman, in that last passage, echoed something that I mentioned at the beginning from Douglas Hyde's book about communists when he said that Jim was demanding more of his people than was usual for a Christian church. You know, Hyde told us that, the communists did this as a matter of policy. Not because they were trying to overburden and overwhelm people in order to control them, but because they knew that people hungered for it. You know, what Jones is doing here, asking people to donate their property and work full-time for the church, that sounds crazy. It sounds like something only a cult would do, and that only brainwashed cult followers would agree to do. But I want to drive home something I said at the beginning, that the communists in the first half of the 20th century were not playing games. They were dead serious, and what Jim was asking of his most ardent followers was only what communist parties around the world asked of theirs. I mean, think about this. In European countries where the Communist Party was stronger and more socially acceptable than in the U.S., card-carrying members made sacrifices that gave them an aura among mere sympathizers, sacrifices that would be hard to find any analog for today. In France and Britain, where communists actually held seats in parliament, It was customary for communists in parliament to hand over their entire salary as a a member of parliament over to the party to do the party's work. And the party in turn would just pay them a small stipend, a worker's wage, for their personal expenses. I mean, imagine a member of parliament or a U.S. congressman doing that today. A little later, when Jim Jones encouraged his followers to hand over their assets to the movement, it included the wage or salary that they were earning from their regular job. The people's temple, in turn, took care of their needs. If they needed eyeglasses, it was paid for. If they needed medical or dental care or medicine, it was paid for. If they donated their home, they lived in a people's temple home or apartment rent-free. And then they were given a small stipend for their personal spending money, the same stipend received by those who quit their jobs to work full-time on temple projects. Critics of the temple point to all this as one of the most oppressive and bizarre aspects of temple life in its middle period, but Again, it was in reality, it was no more than was being asked of communist members of parliament at the time in Britain and France. And for that matter, no more than was asked of the apostles of Christ as they set off on their world-transforming mission in the first century. Jim constantly reminded his people that the apostles, according to the Bible, pooled their property and distributed it to each according to his need, a line I'll repeat because Jones never got tired of repeating it. His critics say that it was an example of him exploiting scripture to manipulate people. Uh, But Jones worked harder and stretched himself thinner than he asked of anyone else. And he never, all the way to the end, never lived extravagantly. In any case, the Bible does say that. When the rich man came to Christ and said he wanted to be one of his disciples, the Bible records Jesus' response. Okay, sell everything you have, give it all to the poor. The rich man says he'll do it. Just give me a little time to go bury a dead relative. And Christ says, no. Let the dead bury their dead. That's hardcore. you know. But if that man was still tied down by old attachments, he was not going to last where they were going. And he was still welcome to come hear Jesus speak, to witness his miracles, and to join the crowds eating loaves and fishes, just like the vast majority of Jim Jones followers, many thousands of people eventually, They didn't do anything more than go to church on Sundays, maybe drop something in a collection plate. But if you want to be a part of the movement, if you want to be a disciple, well, you know, if you want to give your life to the mission to change the world instead of just benefiting from that change, it was going to mean total self-renouncing commitment. And so the rich man departed from Christ, just as most declined to make the sacrifices asked by Jim Jones over the years. And that was fine but there are a lot of people out there looking for a mission and some of them did accept not for nothing did Douglas Hyde tell his Catholic audience that a great number of communists especially among the leadership in Britain were people who had found in the communist party what they had first tried without success to find in the church they'd shown up looking for something to devote themselves to ready, saying here I am, put me to work I don't know exactly what to do but I'm here and I'm here to be put to work And despite all the suffering to be found within just a few blocks of the church building, poor people, homeless people, hungry kids, widows, prisoners, alcoholics, drug addicts, the mentally ill, despite all that, the most that could usually be found for these hyper-motivated people to do was like setting up the chairs before a Sunday service or some other menial task around the church. It's not hard to understand why many of these people responded when the communists said, hey, We got plenty for you to do. In fact, as much energy and dedication as you've got is how much we've got for you to do. And if you want to dedicate yourself to what we're doing, really dedicate yourself, you will be a part of our family. Not in the way the church says it, part of our family, but really in a way that you will feel in your bones. Your brothers and sisters in this movement will put themselves on the line for you. They will go to jail rather than give you up. And as people entered the movement, they found that that was not cheap talk that it was a brotherhood, and that the leaders were being asked to sacrifice as much or more than they were. Hyde talks about an interaction he'd had with another man who was a former Communist Party member, and like himself, had left the party and stayed gone for good reasons, um, but still remembered the whole experience very warmly. Hyde writes, quote, I was talking to such a man on one occasion. Our conversation brought back very vivid to my own mind the extent of the dedication which had been common in the party in the days when we were both communists together. Often, ex-communists meeting together can talk of the old days when we were in the party, rather like old soldiers discussing nostalgically the campaigns they shared in the past. We had been doing this. We had talked of old comrades, who now saw themselves as our enemies, of the campaigns in which we had engaged together. Then, very wistfully, he said, Do you remember what life was really like in the party? You got up in the morning, and as you shaved, you were thinking of the jobs that you would do for communism that day. You went down to breakfast and read The Daily Worker to get the party line, to get the shot and shell for a fight in which you were already involved. You read every item in the paper, wondering how you might be able to use it for the cause. I had never been interested in sport, but I read the sports pages in order to be able to discuss sport with others and to be able to say to them, have you read this in The Daily Worker? I would follow this through by giving them the paper in the hope that they might turn from the sports pages and read the political ones too. On the bus or train on my way to work, I read The Daily Worker as ostentatiously as I could, holding it up so that others might read the headlines and perhaps be influenced by them. I took two copies of the paper with me, the second one I left on the seat in the hope that someone might pick it up and read it. When I got to work, I kept The Daily Worker circulating. One worker after another would take it outside, read it for a few minutes, and bring it back to me again. At lunchtime, in the canteen or the restaurant, I would start conversations with those with whom I was eating. I made a practice of sitting with different groups in order to spread my influence as widely as I could. I did not thrust communism down their throats, but steered our conversations in such a way that they could be brought round to politics, or, if possible, to the campaigns which the party was conducting at the time. Before I left my place of work at night, there was a quick meeting of the factory group or cell. There we discussed in a few minutes the successes and failures of the day, and we discussed, too, what we hoped to be able to do for communism on the following day. I dashed home, had a quick meal, and then went out, maybe to attend classes, maybe to be a tutor, maybe to join some communist campaign going door-to-door canvassing or standing on the side of the road selling communist papers, doing something for communism. And I went home at night and I dreamed of the jobs I was going to do for communism the next day. Rather sadly, he added, You know, life had some meaning and some purpose in those days. Life was good in the Communist Party. End quote. I think a lot of people can understand why something like that would be appealing, especially when you're doing it with other people who are just as committed as you are. This is a very real, very powerful dynamic, and it was very real in People's Temple. Being a part of something special, something important, where your work was needed. Serving with people who were equally committed and who would stand with you when the going got tough, and you knew they would. People's Temple always straddled the categories of cult and political movement. The members were not wide-eyed hippies who thought they were about to be swept up by an alien spacecraft in the tail of a comet like the suicidal members of the Heaven's Gate cult. The total commitment to the cause and to each other is not peculiar to religious movements. Even, Even the paranoia and otherizing of most of the rest of society that eventually happens turns out to be pretty typical of radical political movements. The People's Temple did take these tendencies to extremes. Jim Jones was not just building a political organization or a religious movement. He wanted a family. And many people embraced that. They saw the leader's example. They felt the warmth from the other members, sensed their dedication. They wanted to be a part of that. One of the things you hear over and over from members who dropped away early or avoided the fate in the jungle is that it was the people, not just Jim, sometimes in spite of Jim, that brought them in and kept them around. People's Temple, from beginning to end, preached that American society and capitalism were inherently alienating, that they were structured to make people angry and frustrated, suspicious, and competitive, and that they set people against one another, created a society in which children were indoctrinated into close minded servitude, and a grandparent's last days were spent listening to his family fight like starving vultures over the inheritance. It's a little weird today, but... In the middle of the 20th century, there were many people and groups saying, let's just not do that anymore. If American capitalism is corrupting and sets us against our neighbors, let's just do our own thing. And Joan, Jim, uh, Jonestown, the People's Temple, was part of that movement that by the late 1960s would have you know, some half a million young Americans going out into the commune movement and all the other thing countercultural things that eventually started happening. And over time, through sh- shared adversity and aspirations, people's Temple started to become a family. They worked together, they celebrated together, and when tragedy struck, they supported each other and grieved together. And Jim and Marceline had been married for nearly 10 years in 1958, and all along, Marceline had desperately wanted to have a child. They had Agnes, the neglected little girl that they'd adopted in nineteen fifty four, but for one reason or another, Marceline had not become pregnant herself, and she desperately wanted to. She had a respected role in the church, but uh, it was Jim, This was Jim's show. There was no question about that. She kept busy running the nursing home with with her parents and a lot of the other church projects. But her status as the pastor's wife inevitably put some distance between her and the uh, lay members. So, you know, she she was kind of she was kind of isolated, lonely. She adored and supported Jim, but for Marceline, their church family was not an adequate substitute for having her own children. As a compromise, she and Jim had decided to adopt, and later that year made the trip out to California and returned with two little Korean war orphans to join Agnes, the first adopted daughter. The Joneses and People's Temple took to these two little kids immediately. They love these, these kids. A four-year-old little girl that they called Stephanie and a malnourished two-year-old boy, her, her little brother that they called Lou. And the community showered affection on them. The children had not just found new parents, but a whole extended family. And these lonely and malnourished children began to thrive in the church. Not long after the adoption, it was revealed that Marceline was pregnant. And one night when she was in her eighth month, uh, a bunch of people from the church, including uh, Stephanie and Lou, the two little orphans from Korean war orphans it adopted piled into a, a bunch of cars. Um, as a troop of people's temple members drove to see Jim deliver a guest sermon at a Cincinnati church. Marceline stayed home to rest. She was in her eighth month. Um, Jim closed the church service with songs. Cincinnati is maybe from Indianapolis. I don't know, two hours East or so roughly. I've never made the drive, but uh, I've looked at it on a map. So Jim finishes the service with a couple songs and he remembered later leading the chorus Up on the road, far in the distance I saw a light shining in the night And then I knew They were driving back to Indianapolis at nighttime, On a straight section of US 421 And Mabel Stewart, the driver of the car containing little Stephanie Jones Took another vehicle head on and six people were killed Including Stephanie And it's unclear exactly what happened Some books say that the other driver was drunk Others say it was dark and raining. Others say that Mrs. Stewart simply tried to pass with too little space. Well, Either way, Jim Jones was there and he saw it all. He was shocked and devastated by the carnage, especially by the sight of Stephanie's tiny mangled body. Associated Press reporters arrived and interviewed Jim on the scene. Quote, It's a little hard to understand these things, he struggled to say. Those people were like my flesh and blood. About Stephanie, he said, she was an exceptional child. Already she could speak perfect English. At least we have the consolation of knowing she received more love in those few months than in her entire life before. But Jim's sadness soon mixed with rage. Because Stephanie was Korean, no Indianapolis cemetery would allow her body to be buried next to White's. The first morticians they engaged to prepare her for burial refused to do the job until finally a black mortician agreed to do it. She was laid to rest in one of Indy's two black cemeteries in the worst part of town in a hole half filled with water by a rainstorm. Jim wept as her coffin was lowered into the muddy water and remembering the scene later he cursed the cruelty of it. Even later, decades later, he would remember it, and you can you can hear him in recordings, and you can tell it's very difficult for him. Jim and Marceline grieved with the support of their people, who cared for Marceline as her delivery date approached. In the days after the accident, Marceline recalled an offhand statement Stephanie had apparently made, saying that she wished her friend Aboki had kind parents like she had. So on the day of Stephanie's burial, Jim and Marceline called the South Korean orphanage where Stephanie and Lou had been warehoused, and asked if there was a child there named Aboki. Turned out that there was, and it was confirmed that she and Aboki had been close. Stephanie and Aboki had been close friends, and so Jim and Marceline made the arrangements and adopted her. And the church made Aboki part of the family right away. Um, the people waited on Marceline, and they did their best to support Jim, who seemed to deal with the tragedy by putting it out of his head and just working even more than before. So amidst all this, Marceline comes to term and delivers a baby boy. He's named Stephen Gandhi Jones, Stephen spelled S-T-E-P-H-A-N, in order to honor the deceased Stephanie. He was strong and healthy, delivered seven pounds. He had Jim's dark hair, but Marceline's features... And so the Joneses now have four children living with them. Agnes, the two Korean orphans, Lou and Aboki, who they renamed Suzanne, and Stephen. They also have several adult church members living with them. Marceline's uh, father had retired, I I mentioned earlier, in one of the passages, and so her parents had moved in with them to assist with running the senior living home. Uh, It's a full house, but they're still not done. Within a few months of Stephen's birth, Jim and Marceline decide to add to their household again by adopting a black baby. By this time, Jim's activities had already begun attracting negative attention from people who were opposed to integration, and Marceline's mother worried that the adoption was just going to cause more trouble. But Jim and Marceline wouldn't be put off, and to demonstrate their total commitment to it, Jim gave his own name to the boy, James Warren Jones Jr., the first black child adopted by a white family in Indiana history. This is a bold move in 1959. Typically bold for Jim, but still bold. But he and Marceline weren't doing this alone. Their people were with them. And when Marceline, walking on the street with little Jim Jr., was spit on and called nigger lover, as she was frequently, and Jim Sr. began to receive death threats, the people rallied around them and stuck together. The country was changing rapidly. The South was beginning to boil. And while... Again, Indiana wasn't the deep south. It was in the borderlands of that region where pro-segregation forces were throwing bombs and taking shots at pro-integration activists. The country was just, it was undergoing very rapid changes that went to the heart of Jim Jones' passion and the focus of his ministry. Most of the country wouldn't catch on to this until maybe the Greensboro sit ins in 1960 or the Freedom Riders in 61, but Jim had been plugged into this from the beginning. In 1954, the year... Jim was establishing his first church. Uh, you know, that was the year Supreme Court ruled on Brown versus the Board of Education. You know, I think I mentioned this in passing before. Uh, but it outlawed segregation in schools and set the table for the fall of segregation across the country. In the next year, 1955, a 14-year-old black Mississippi boy named Emmett Till was brutally murdered for allegedly offending a white woman in a grocery store. Till was kidnapped, beaten, mutilated, and shot in the head by the woman's husband and brother. The men were acquitted by an all-white jury and then the next year, protected against double jeopardy, admitted that they had in fact killed the boy. That acquittal came a few months before a young lady named Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of a bus and she was arrested for it, leading to a boycott of the Montgomery bus system under the leadership of someone you may have heard of, a 26-year-old Baptist minister named Martin Luther King Jr. The next year, 1957, the front lines moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, where several black students were being blocked from enrollment at a high school despite the Supreme Court's ruling, and President Eisenhower sent federal to- troops to enforce integration. Many Americans, even many in the North, who supported integration and were outraged at Southern backwardness on the issue were wary of seeing federal soldiers threaten American citizens with guns. And you have to remember, this is back at the beginning of this process. We've all been brought up and educated in a world where the civil rights movement is not only history but has been elevated almost into a national mythology but back at the beginning of the process you know you're dealing you know older adults middle-aged adults in the middle 1950s these people were born in the 1910s right 19 early 1900s Uh, change takes time and uh people look at things very differently um, back at the beginning of this process, many people were wondering you know, how good a policy could possibly be if it required using the army against our own people to enforce it. Eisenhower didn't call out the troops to take down a violent rebellion or a criminal organization, but to make otherwise law-abiding middle-class people do something that they didn't want to do. And civil rights activists needed to convince the country that the path of violence, in fact, ran in the opposite direction. They needed to show people that they were not trying to use violence to bludgeon their way into white institutions, establishments, and communities, but that Jim Crow itself was only held together by systematic, brutal violence against them. In early 1960, a small group of student activists in Greensboro, North Carolina, staged a series of sit-ins at a Woolworth department store in an effort to force desegregation there. The first day, a few students were refused service, but for their part, refused to leave, staying seated and doing schoolwork until the place closed. The next day, reinforced by more activists recruited from other campus groups, more than 20 black students joined the sit-in. This time, local news showed up with a camera crew. The black students were again refused service, and they were harassed by the white customers. The third day, over 60 activists showed up, including students from a local high school. The media was present when a state KKK leader arrived with several other members. Things continued to escalate on the fourth day, with over 300 activists filling the Woolworth lunch area so that no other customers could be served, and the sit-in was expanded to other nearby establishments still adhering to segregation. By the fifth day, tensions were high. Some 50 white men had arrived and taken up places at a lunch counter opposite the group of activists, which now included several white college students. Words were exchanged, and the police made a few arrests. The next day, so the sixth day, 1,400 students met in an auditorium and voted to continue the sit-ins. They made their way back to Woolworth as a group and packed over 1,000 people into the store. A little after one PM a bomb threat's called in and the large group of activists abandon Woolworths and makes its way to another nearby segregated store, but that store is preemptively closed. Within a week of the first Greensboro sit in, similar nonviolent protests and boycotts spread to several other North Carolina towns and cities and very quickly to cities all over the south. Now, this was protest theater built for the 20th century, pioneered by Gandhi, inspired by Martin Luther King Jr., and put into action by student activists who understood the political and media environment better than the old southern politicians and sheriffs trying to hold on to Jim Crow. The spectacle of young black college students being harassed and spat upon by white counter protesters and treated as a law enforcement problem for nonviolently demanding to be served at a lunch counter that went out over the airwaves of this newly ubiquitous technology called television by 1960 there were televisions in 50 million american homes and it drew the negative attention of the country and thus the government onto the south and beginning it was the beginning of the mobilization of a generation of young white people joining the already active you know, young young black activists and this was the point and the goal of nonviolent resistance and it seemed to be working the Montgomery buses had been desegregated. Stores targeted by the sit-ins had begun agreeing to desegregate or at least negotiate. State and local officials in the South were becoming wary of the federal attention they were receiving in 1960, a presidential election year, and started to you know, open up because of that. Now, this was the beginning of the struggle as far as most of white America was concerned. It was the first time that really large numbers of people outside the South were confronted with images of what was going on and began to think of it as a national issue requiring a national conversation and solution, and not just a regional issue that the people involved should work out themselves. But Jim Jones was not most of white America. He'd been deeply plugged into these movements when they were still underground, and was positioning himself to ride the wave before most people even knew it was forming on the horizon. I mentioned earlier that back in college in the late 40s, he'd gone with a group of socialist friends up to Chicago to see Paul Robeson speak, This was at a time when Robeson was on the Attorney General's list of subversives and about to be blacklisted for his open communist sympathies and criticism of U.S. power. Jim Jones was serious about this stuff even then. And he was following developments in detail throughout the 1950s. When the sit-ins hit the national news in 1960, the rest of the country was tuning in and catching up. Jim Jim Jones had been read in all along. The World Communist Movement had always been anti-racist. You know, whatever the feelings of individual communists, people are people. Uh, the movement was officially anti-racist, and communist organizations in the U.S. have been establishing ties to black rights organizations going back to the years after the First World War, at least. As a result, the communists often got a hearing from black intellectuals. Although the Christian roots of the southern civil rights movement limited communism's reach in that part of the country, and the perceived improbability and undesirability, depending on who you asked, of leaving aside racial or ethno identity altogether in favor of one founded only on economic class, limited the number of full-on converts in northern black capitals like Harlem, the communists were still at least speaking a language of exploitation, oppression, and liberation in which black intellectuals and civil rights leaders were fluent. The Cuban Revolution in 1959 made this much more explicit. The overthrow of the Batista regime by Castro brought about an improvement in the situation of black Cubans, and Castro openly and vociferously supported the black civil rights movement in the U.S. In 1959, black radicals like Robert F. Williams visited Cuba and received the red carpet treatment despite still being pretty marginal figures on the U.S. scene. When the FBI began cracking down on black radicals like Williams, Castro gladly gave them asylum. Many of them, including Williams. When Williams fled to Cuba to avoid prosecution, we'll get deeper into this stuff in the next episode, uh, Castro provided him a radio station called Radio Free Dixie that broadcast Williams' rants into the southern states. Castro became a beloved figure among black intellectuals, especially after his 1959 visit to Harlem, during which his first meeting was with a rising young leader in the nation of Islam named Malcolm X. You might have heard of him. He called Castro the only white person I ever liked. Castro's rise, along with the emergence of independent post-colonial African states, marks the beginning of an epical shift in how many people involved in the American civil rights movement saw themselves and what they were doing. The Southern movement, led by Martin Luther King and grounded in Christianity, was American to its core employing rhetoric based in biblical and American traditions to try to wake up white Americans to the fact that they were not living up to the principles that they themselves claimed to hold dear. MLK, even while he received daily death threats by the dozen and faced the wrath of white civilians and law enforcement for demanding basic rights, he was absolutely committed to integration and nonviolence. He had almost a saint-like faith in the humanity of people who hated his guts. But while everybody in the movement respected him, of course, some people thought that his faith was misplaced and naive, and the rise of Castro and post-colonial African states began to provide the framework for another way of looking at things. Again, we're going deep into all this in the next episode, so I don't want to get detained here for long, but the emerging idea was that the American Civil Rights Movement was just one front in a global uprising against Western imperialism this wasn't this wasn't uh you know a dispute between American whites and American blacks this was a this was a small part of a global issue. the west, the white Christian world had been exploiting the rest of the globe for centuries. The revolution had begun in Russia, and you know the story went it would have spread through the rest of Europe, liberating the captive colonies in Africa, Asia, and Latin America if not for the support of fascist dictatorships by the american led west, according to this view. Blacks were not just Americans who were being unjustly deprived of their equal rights under the Constitution. They were another people altogether, laboring under oppression and servitude in the service of foreign masters. The way forward was not integration. The dream was not for little white boys and girls and little black boys and girls to be playing together, unconscious of their racial difference. The way forward was... The way the Vietnamese were pursuing against the French occupation. The Algerian way. Revolution. In solidarity with all the other oppressed peoples of the world. Well, now we're bringing together two great threads of Jim Jones' life. And he had to see this for himself. And so in late 1959, early 1960, he goes to Cuba with Marceline. This was after it had become clear that Castro was breaking for the Soviets and had become international public enemy number one to the American government. Conflict was rampant and brutal, and the Joneses witnessed terror bombing of the cane fields and villages, more than once having to dive out of their car and take cover in a ditch as bombs exploded around them. Jim Jones swore to his dying day that American pilots flew planes bombing Cuban civilians. He says in many recordings of open meetings with his people that he was told by Cubans that this was the case, and he didn't believe them. There had been no news of U.S. military involvement. The U.S. government denied it. And so they brought him to see the bodies of two pilots who had been shot down. The Cubans thought he and Marceline were there as missionaries, he said. So he swore to the end that they were absolutely American pilots, and he asked for permission to take a picture of the corpses, which he did. And when he says this in these meetings, he listen to the recordings with his people. He references the pictures and says, You all know what I'm talking about. You've seen the pictures. And they're all they all agree. I've never quite known what to make of this, because... Officially, the U.S. was not running military operations in Cuba at the time. This is still during the Eisenhower administration. I've sent off FOIA requests, actually, but I haven't heard back as of the time of this recording. I'll let you know if I do. Uh, I don't hold out a lot of hope for that. But I don't know. What I do know is that Jim returned from his trip to Cuba uh, a different person. Affected, for sure. More zealous. More paranoid. Um, He seemed to maybe seek out conflict more. In 1960, Jim Jones was offered the directorship of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. He's back in Indy now. Um, The selection board for the Human Rights Commission consisted of a rabbi, a black judge, and a priest. And they had spoken to Jim and reviewed press, press clippings of his work with blacks and the poor, but they didn't know anything about his healings and psychic tricks, and so he slid through pretty easily. In any case, the human rights director was supposed to be something of a figurehead. Um, someone who brought together leaders of various groups to endorse city projects or to hold some of those symbolic meetings that made symbolic decisions that we mentioned earlier. The South was beginning to burn with racial tension, and the mayor wanted Jones to keep a low profile and be diplomatic. Nobody benefited from civil unrest, and Jim's role was to act as a liaison between groups to make sure that that didn't come to Indianapolis. But of course, uh, this is not what Jim had in mind. And he immediately began to use his new platform in ways that the mayor certainly didn't have in mind. From Jeff Gwynne's book quote, Jones began his crusade with white owned cafes and restaurants. Most routinely turned away prospective black diners, though in passive aggressive fashion rather than openly denying service based on race. Blacks who arrived and asked to be seated, even in places with many empty tables, were informed that advance reservations were required. If reservations were then requested, The blacks were told that every table at that time was already spoken for. Jim and Marceline went to medium-priced restaurants where they regularly dined as a couple or with the Haldemans, but this time they brought African-American friends. When informed that reservations were required, they replied politely but firmly that this was never the case before. If no table was available, they would wait to be seated. Occasionally they were, but the service provided and the food served was always deplorable. Most often, they were left standing until the restaurant closed. The result suited Jones. The next day, he'd be back by himself, asking to speak to the owner. If the owner wasn't available, Jones kept returning as often as necessary to get a meeting. Then, in a reasonable tone, Jones would ask that the restaurant begin accepting African-American guests and provide the same quality of food and service to them that was to be enjoyed by whites. At first, he was always refused and told to mind his own business, Jones would politely ask the owner to reconsider, because he'd be back to talk again. During a second conversation, Jones worked to establish common ground. He'd grown up poor. He understood how hard it was to even start a business, let alone keep one going. Jones wasn't pressing integration to cause trouble. He was suggesting something that would actually boost revenue by bringing in new customers. Everyone would benefit. Of course, continued refusal to integrate, he warned, would bring a third visit, and this time Jones would have to bring a crowd of blacks and whites with him, not to dine, but to protest. He'd regret the necessity of it, and of course it would be picketing of a peaceful nature. Still, the restaurant's customers would have to maneuver through polite protesters, asking him to withhold their business until this restaurant served diners of all races. It would be embarrassing. Income would be lost. Jones' sincerity was obvious. No one dared call his bluff. When the first few restaurants capitulated, Jones rewarded them by arriving with lots of new customers, most of them Temple members. He was shrewd, usually arriving at off hours rather than busy ones, providing the restaurants with additional traffic without inconveniencing or driving away the regulars. Bills for these meals were paid out of the Temple treasury, so cash-strap members enjoyed dining out for free. And he did more. The Temple regularly distributed flyers and newsletters announcing various church programs and outings, Now, whenever a mom-and-pop restaurant integrated, at Jones' request, people distributed flyers celebrating the latest progress in integrating Indianapolis. These might praise a specific establishment and urge everyone to dine there. Word spread. If you cooperated with Jim Jones, he and his church people became some of the best friends a small businessman could have. Soon, when Jones asked for initial meetings with cafe or restaurant owners, more were agreeable. Jones' success was so widespread that he didn't order any picketing. The possibility was enough to serve his purpose. From there, Jones moved on to other types of businesses, using the same tactics. He never shouted, never became unpleasant, even when those he was dealing with did. Jones presented himself as the voice of reason. He could refer recalcitrant owners to others who would change their policies. These people had more customers than ever. Most were glad they had cooperated with Jim Jones. Just ask them. There were committed segregationists, higher on the Indianapolis economic ladder than individual shop owners. When they noticed Jones' success at street-level business integration, they tried derailing his efforts by buying him off. Surely the man needed money. His salary as commission director was only $7,000, and from the look of them, the members of his church couldn't afford to pay their pastor much. Jones was offered a job at $25,000 a year to quit the Human Rights Commission. Marceline remembered later that it was with the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce. Jones did need money. He and Marceline were now raising four children on a shoestring budget. Jones received 55% of all collections taken at People's Temple Services, but that wasn't much. Income from his outside appearances went directly to church programs, not to him. With the full support of his wife, Jones turned down the offer. As more businesses integrated in terms of customers, Jones began pushing them to integrate their workforces as well. Through People's Temple, he formed an employment service. Members of the temple and some impoverished, desperate outsiders, too, were placed in entry-level positions with companies that would never have considered employing them before Jones became Human Rights Commission Director. It wasn't Jones's intent to burden employers with incompetent workers as a regretful but necessary concession to integration. Just the opposite. He expected the people he placed to become outstanding employees. When they began their new jobs, Jones told them he'd put his reputation on the line for them. If they messed up, he'd be blamed, and afterwards be that much less effective leading the fight for integration. So it was on them as much as on him. Most responded as Jones hoped by doing good work. They were grateful to Jones, and so were their employers. His prestige and his confidence grew. End quote. When Jim used his position to get a weekly spot on a local radio station to promote integration on behalf of the city, he was warned by the mayor and others on the Human Rights Commission to dial it back. One night, he attended a meeting of civil rights groups, including the NAACP and the Urban League, in his capacity as Indy's Human Rights Director. And each speaker that preceded him, the mayor, everybody was here, Um, each speaker that preceded him struck a conciliatory tone, assuring the audience that the city was working behind the scenes to address discrimination and endorsing this approach. But when Jim took the mic, he just launched into a tirade about the evils of racism and the intolerable centuries-long history of the abuse blacks had endured. He goes on and on. He's urging his listeners not to sit by and wait for officials to make improvements behind the scenes, but to be vigilant and make their own fight for justice. He urges them to... You know, be aggressive and militant, and he climaxes at the end by screaming, let my people go, and the audience jumps up and explodes with a deafening standing ovation. It was just not what, you know, the mayor is just ashen at this point. As Jim becomes more confident and influential, he begins flirting with more direct ideological appeals to his people. Reiterman and Raven recounts a memorable sermon from this period. Quote, One Sunday, 28-year-old Jim Jones tested them with a fiery sermon in his Delaware Street church. The evangelical rhetoric leapt from subject to subject as Jones guided his congregation along an emotional journey, from despair at the threat of damnation to ecstasy at the promise of redemption. His voice, his dramatic timing, with exhausting climaxes followed by an almost conversational lull, carried the crowd from one feverish crescendo to another. Into his evangelism, Jones wove themes that indicated the long-range direction of people's temple, and he projected a kind of us versus them view of the world. There was another tone as well, that of the petulant, egotistical man, impatient with the inattentive, pleased when he had the audience firmly within his control. You ready to go home? He would shout at one point, mockingly secure in his own power. Too bad! At another moment, he warned his listeners to wake up for the healing's coming. Either you endure sound doctrine when I preach it, he threatened, or you don't hear it. Then, at one point, re-adopting his pose of humility, he apologized for rambling. Yet upon examination, even Jones's vagaries possessed an uncanny internal logic. You need to wash somebody's feet today, most of you, Jones thundered from his pulpit. Not some little grandma you love, but somebody you don't like at all. I'll never forget one lady in our church. She was so starchy. She said... I'm not going to wash feet. Finally, we talked her into washing feet. The feet of a friend. And the friend wouldn't let her. And that poor old lady just sat there and sat there. And the blackest Negro woman in my church. And oh, she hated him. She hated him so bad she couldn't stand him. The blackest, ugliest, dirtiest Negro woman in our church. The crowd laughed. Came up and sat down and said, Wash my feet. There was more laughter. And she washed the feet and she got her victory. Now, I didn't speak that to reflect on race. We got a principal and a doctor and a dentist in my church who are Negro. My best and most intelligent people, and some of my most forthright of our constituency are Negro. About 10%. And by far, the 10% of our Negro population got more intelligence than our so-called white people. But in our church, we don't call them white or Negro. We call them by name. Jim Jones paused for a moment to gather momentum for the next burst. Then, with his voice, he transported his listeners to a street corner. There he was, he told them, at the corner of Market and Alabama, ministering to a drunk. Concluding that story and having aroused their admiration, he challenged his people to do the same, to dedicate everything to the cause. He reminded the congregation of the early days of Christianity, and he drew parallels between Christ's apostles, who had forsaken their belongings to live communally, and temple members, who had done the same. He picked up volumes suddenly to roughly quote the Bible. And they sold their possessions and goods and imparted them to every man as has need. And he boomed a challenge. Now what are you going to do with that? Any opinion? No, I didn't think so. It's true and it's pitiful. Communism has sold itself to the group mind. Only one thing's going to counter communism. It has its Messiah. It has its Bible. It has its tomes. And the only thing that's going to stop it is for us to sell what we have and impart them to every man that has need. Here was Jones' proposal to fight communism with the temple's brand of religious communalism. God for some time has been putting it on our hearts to sell what we have and give it to the corporate community of our church, he went on. Our temple has started a free restaurant, feeding people without cost, running a grocery and no charge for food. We're asking people to give as God blesses them. No charge for anything because God is free and everything he has is free. It's been provided. Our home for the elderly The nicest in the state of Indiana has been established on the basis of from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Had there been another closet Marxist in the audience that night, surely he would not have missed that most famous of all lines from Karl Marx's 1875 critique of the Gotha program. But Jones, though borrowing from Marx, played upon the fact that his Christian audience would recall the similarities in the Acts of the Apostles 4, 34, and 35. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. That passage would eventually allow Jones to call Christ the first communist. He went on, I know if there weren't a few people healed here every week, or a different person called out by discernment, I know some of you wouldn't come to hear me preach. Some of you don't like to hear this tonight, but you had better get ready to hear a lot more of it. We needed it. Amen. It was a remarkable performance. End quote. Now with his you know, increasing political profile, started to come the inevitable opposition. But rather than back down from or avoid conflict, which he didn't even know how to do, Jim sought it out. He sent a letter off to officials of the American Nazi Party, challenging him to offer up someone to publicly debate him on racial issues. And they actually replied to him in a letter. It said, quote, it does not surprise me that an integrationist would attempt to annihilate his opponents with love. The trouble with all your beliefs is that they are unnatural. Natural laws require, nay demand, struggle. Your doctrines of weakness cannot possibly prevail. Our natures are so divergent that we could never understand each other. I'll Hitler. Unquote. Jim took those letter, the copies of the letter, and circulated them around City Hall and among his people knowing how it looked to be seen as someone on the front line opposing Nazis. He also used the black Muslims of the Nation of Islam as a foil, at one point arriving at a mosque in Chicago asking to speak to its leaders. He was denied entry since white people are not allowed to enter nation facilities, and he protested he had an adopted black son with his own name and he should be allowed in, but he was not. And When he returned to Indianapolis, he made sure everybody heard that story as well. Not only was he opposed by the radical right, but also by the scary bow-tied black Muslims preaching about white devils and racial Armageddon. He's very savvy when it came to this stuff. You know, it, it is, and again, it's true belief and you know, doing things tactically. These things very often get mixed. You know, we tend to find things where we think people are, are being a little tactical or disingenuous, and take that as a sign of insincerity. But very often, these things are mixed. When Jim Jones was opposed by white racists, he wore their scorn as a badge of honor. He also made sure everybody heard about it, knowing from the experiences of the Southern Civil Rights Movement that nothing bound people to a leader like seeing him threatened or attacked on behalf of the cause. But by the summer of 61, you know, as, as Americans are watching the Freedom Riders be beaten and jailed as they challenge unconstitutional Southern segregation policies, opposition to Jim's work began to harden into something more serious. He went to the newspapers to tell them about the pile of hate mail and dozens of telephone calls that he was receiving. A swastika was painted on his church door. A dead cat was thrown at the Jones house. Someone placed a stick of dynamite on the church coal pile. Marceline, I mentioned this before, she was spit on while she carried Jim Jr., their adopted black child. And so the Jones house slash family commune in the inner circle of the church began to Sort of take on a siege mentality. In 1958, Martin Luther King Jr.'s house had been bombed, and he and other civil rights leaders faced harassment and threats of assault and assassination on a regular basis. This was was not a joke. Jim never backed down, but he definitely began to show signs of stress, including paranoia and hypochondria. And some of his closest friends and advisors began to worry about him and he even began to suspect that in some cases he may have been exaggerating or even fabricating some of the harassment to frame himself as a beleaguered civil rights martyr. In one instance at a church potluck, Jim jumped up from the table shouting that someone had tried to assassinate him by putting glass in his food. And everybody flips out, except for the man who had served the food, an assistant pastor who was certain that the large piece of glass on Jim's plate was not there when he dished it out. Several times the church was evacuated due to bomb threats, and at least two of these instances, some of Jim's assistants, including the assistant pastor who doubted the story about the glass, they also had suspicions that something wasn't right here. Even Marceline had doubts about some incidents. Riderman writes, quote, One evening, as they visited with some of Marceline's friends, a crash startled them all. The others found Jim alone in a room, with a broken window and a rock on the floor. One of his racist enemies had tried to injure him, he said. But his host noticed that the window glass had been broken outward and accused Jim of shattering the glass himself. Marceline backed up her husband's indignant denials, though it cost her the friendship. But deep down, as she later told her son Stephen, she knew that Jones had staged the attack. He seemed to need to prove to those around him that he was not overreacting, paranoid or crazy that indeed people were out to get him, end quote. There's no question, I want to make very clear, there's no question that Jim Jones faced harassment and threats for his views and his work in Indianapolis. It was par for the course for civil rights activists and integrationists, and Jim was more creative and confrontational in his activism than most. But, you know, today, in, in the age of Jesse Smollett, I don't want to get political, but in a, you know, in this day, it's not hard to see why somebody would exaggerate or even stage hate crimes against themselves. You know, if you're not found out, you really do get sympathy and status within a movement centered around standing up for victims. And we can imagine the people in the church standing up and filing outside because the racists have called in a bomb threat, just like was. You know, just like what's happening to the great Martin Luther King Jr. down south. Now it's happening to them. They're, they're right in the thick of it, right on the front lines. And Pastor Jim, he's putting himself at more risk than anyone, putting himself on the line for his people and for the cause. You, know, you can imagine if you were part of a church or part of an organization engaged in social activism that you thought was very important, and you started getting bomb threats from people who opposed it, how, you know, that would cement your resolve and make you feel closer to the people who were standing by you through it all. All the people who write about Jones tend to think the worst of him, not only later, but even all the way back to his childhood. And so they glom on to suspicions of, you know, the, the, the suspicions that some of his circle had about what was happening in this period as evidence of his cynicism. And maybe there is some of that. They could, could be right. I, I just don't see it that way, though. Um, I think a lot of the hate crime hoaxes that happen are a form of uh, sort of social justice Munchausen syndrome. You know, I remember somebody who worked for me maybe 15 years ago or so. Um, it was a pretty stressful period at work. We had a lot going on. And the guy was one of my top performers. But over a period of a few months, his performance had begun to slip and then to fall off pretty dramatically. And one day, without being confronted or anything, he came to me and he starts crying. He's like bawling, crying. And he starts telling me about how he knew he hadn't been performing well lately But that his mother back home had recently been diagnosed with cancer a few months back and he'd just been having a hard time dealing with all of it. And so, of course, I was very sympathetic and I told him not to worry about it, take as much time as he needed and so forth. And a little while later, I found out that none of that was true. He just made the whole story up. And what was happening was, you know, he was just completely stressed out. He was becoming depressed. He was having trouble sleeping. And when he knew that other people were noticing it, you know, he was a young guy, military type. Um, He just didn't have the language to say that he was just breaking down under the pressure. So he made something up. It sounds crazy, but people do, do it all the time. And I think Jim Jones, I mean, again, he, remember, he's still not even 30 years old. A few years ago, he had just a few years ago, he... Had, had only opened his little storefront church and was helping a few old black ladies with their disputes with the power company. And now he's been going a hundred miles an hour, leading a thousand strong church, heading up the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission, getting death threats, having swastikas painted on his church. And all this not long after he stood over the splattered remains of his adopted daughter and stood in the rain as her coffin was lowered into a watery grave in a bad part of town because her body was deemed unfit to rest next to the bodies of dead white people. This episode compared to this episode of the podcast compared to where this series is headed has been pretty tame. You know, we're covering a lot of kind of necessary ground, but we're sort of setting up a lot of the pieces that are going to be knocked the hell over over the next couple episodes. But Still, like it's, it's kind of slow and, and you know, anticlimactic as this, as this sort of middle of the movie episode is. If you actually put yourself in Jim's shoes and think about it, put yourself in these shoes. It's been a hell of a decade for a badly raised kid from a tiny town in rural Indiana. You know, the whole time he's been flying by the seat of his pants. And he didn't rise up by stages, but just very quickly found himself in a situation that was way bigger than he was probably ready for. Nobody prepared him for this. He wasn't raised for this kind of thing. Nobody taught him anything. So he did the only thing he knew how to do. He just put his head down and pushed harder and harder and slept less and did more. But after a while, the whole thing takes its toll, and it was taking a toll on him. But his people are looking to him for strength and leadership. And more than that, these people are not in people's temple because it's the denomination their parents raised them in. They're in people's temple because of Jim Jones. You know he had to keep it together. And he couldn't confide in anyone about his struggles. So Marceline hoped that another couple, family friends, people Jim respected, who had their own church in Cincinnati. This was you know across state lines from Indianapolis, and far enough, she hoped that Jim might feel comfortable enough to open up. From Tim Riderman quote. "As Marceline grew more worried about disturbing changes in Jim, She confided in their friends, Reverend Edwin and Audrey Wilson. By degrees, her domineering husband was himself becoming dominated by his fears and worries. The Wilsons, she thought, might prove a stabilizing influence. Edwin and Audrey Wilson knew of Jim's absorption in his ministry and his insensitivity to his wife's needs. They knew he was foundering among Christian beliefs, agnosticism, and leftist political views, openly admitting to struggles with his own mind and with the world. Then, little by little he also exposed the Wilsons to the fearful facets chiseled into his personality. From the start of their friendship in the 1950s, Jones had seemed far too insecure for a promising young preacher whose hands and voice supposedly directed the power of the Holy Spirit. When he came to visit their Cincinnati church, Jim sometimes broke out in hives, evidently from the strain of his healings. Putting aside the demands and postures of leadership, Jones revealed his frailties. In private, Jones presented not the certitude of a visionary, but rather insecurity and an inferiority complex. Although he seemingly had psychic powers, such as foretelling license numbers of cars and reading playing cards by touch, Jim doubted himself, just as he doubted the existence of the Almighty. Negativism and undercurrents of paranoia swept him. Reverend Wilson, a survivor of the Battle of the Bulge, recognized the pattern of fear. No single phobia, no single set of circumstances provoked Jim's overreactions. Incapable of identifying his enemy, Jones was equally incapable of surmounting it. The fears lingered or returned quickly, assaulting him again and again. He submitted to them, and they became a part of him, like a chronic injury. When he could not shake them, he tried to get others to share them, so he would not face them alone, so others would not think him cowardly or excessively fearful or mentally ill. No one in the position of Jim Jones would want to admit that he was losing control of himself. But fears were getting the better of him. Confidants like the Wilsons saw the dark shadows as they passed, some rapidly, others painfully slowly. One night, he would be consumed by fear of being murdered for his racial views. Another, he would be paralyzed with worry that he was dying. Other times, he would be afraid of flying in airplanes or scared of heights. The bomb terrified him constantly. His fears pushed him to overreaction, which someday would become his most dangerous trait. Once, when Jim's leg cramped while he was swimming in a lake, he panicked, screaming desperately for help, though his wife and friends had a steady grip on him. His worst attacks came at his own home. On a few occasions, he actually keeled over while emotionally discussing some problem or even while just watching television during stressful times. Thus began a lifetime pattern of collapses, at least some of which were faked. Marceline had become a veteran of the routine. Jones would gasp, throw back his head, and seem to black out. Always, she jumped into action, fetching a hypodermic needle and injecting Jim with what she called vitamin B12. To others, she explained that Jim had anemia from a past case of hepatitis. Slowly, Jim would come out of his deep sleep. While recovering, he would complain of extreme sensitivity to sound, the slightest noise amplified in his head like clashing tin pans. Jones acted unembarrassed by his collapses, which lasted only minutes. He would simply say that he hoped to get over the problem soon. But the real source and nature of the problem remained obscure. Sometimes he blamed his liver, other times he blamed it on cancer. Faithfully, Marceline provided comfort when he took ill. Internalizing her own emotional suffering, she treated him like a fragile child and assumed the role of both mother and nurse. As a nurse... She certainly knew that Jim's troubles were not entirely physical, but out of love and loyalty, she became the first person to help conceal Jones's crumbling psyche from the world. Quote. Jim's aides began to witness his erratic behavior and even saw his collapses. One time he fell down a flight of stairs. He told him when they would happen that he was having a series of recurrent heart attacks. Increasingly paranoid about being attacked, Jim began to call on his doctor, somebody he thought he could speak to privately, to complain about the harassment campaign against him. And finally, in October 1961, Jim Jones had to be hospitalized for severe stress-related ulcers. But even here, the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission director was on the job, even even in the hospital. The hospital wards were still segregated by race, and since it was assumed... uh, that Since Jim's doctor was black The incoming patient was also going to be black He was slated for a bed in one of the black wards So the hospital Attempted to apologize for the mistake And to move him to a white ward But of course Jim refused to be moved to a white ward And he even refused to be treated Until the hospital agreed to desegregate the wards So the while the hospital management Is discussing what to do Jim spends his time making beds And cleaning bedpans And taking care of the other patients In the black ward where he was staying And finally, deciding they didn't want to explain why the city's human rights director had died in their care, they agreed to desegregate. Jim was treated, but he was not healed. He was experiencing a drawn-out nervous breakdown, and under such conditions, even simple tasks can seem impossible. The demands of running his church and balancing his other roles and responsibilities were not simple tasks, and he was still continually beset by attacks of paranoia and panic. You know, overstress can manifest as exhaustion, but sometimes it feels like panic. And panic people do anything to get away from what's causing it? Jim needed a way out. But I think I'm going to make you wait for the next episode for that. But But nothing really happened this episode. I know. I get it. This was an episode where a crazy guy who eventually leads 900 people to their deaths isn't really that crazy yet. So it might have seemed like... You know, something we just had to get through this episode. But this episode was necessary because we we needed it we needed to see that someone like Jim Jones doesn't just emerge out of nowhere. And that he wasn't born evil. I'm gonna end this episode here because this part of the story's been pretty conventional, whereas everything from here on out is anything but conventional. And when we pick up the next episode, Jim and Marceline are gonna be in Brazil in the same city and at the same time as a former police chief in Richmond, Indiana, who knew Jim from his days preaching on street corners, is working for the CIA, helping Brazilian police set up their counterintelligence interrogation and torture programs. In the next episode, government agencies are going to spy on Jim Jones and People's Temple when they move to San Francisco and and expand their membership by thousands of people. In the next episode, the nonviolent. Racial protest movement of Martin Luther King Is going to be challenged by militant young radicals As race riots tear apart American cities And thousands of white college students Are mobilized to join them In the next episode Jim Jones and segments of the 1960s radical left With which he was in dialogue Are going to barrel off a cliff Into paranoia, madness, and death In the next episode
1: i